everyone, and welcome back once again to the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites' weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. My name is Brian Vitale, and once again, we have a full house here today. Uh, joining me, the always reliable Josh Torres. We have more than two people this time. That's crazy. We've got James Galizio. Hey, folks. Chow Min Wu. How's it going? And Adam Vitale. Hello. Welcome back, everyone. I've missed all all of you, except Josh. Uh, he hasn't been absent enough for me to miss him. He's just here. But I would miss him if he were to be absent. I'll put it that Aww. way. There we go. So uh, welcome back. We've got the normal crew for the TetraCast. It's been a, a pretty cool week. We're going into the late spring, early summer months. Now we had a big Final Fantasy patch. We've got some other games coming out, some cool announcements, some release date. Interesting news there to talk about that'll probably come up pretty early in the podcast. Uh, it's been it's been an interesting couple of days. We've got PAX East going on. We've got some, even though it still feels like we're kind of in like tail end of uh, pandemic scale convention sort of stuff. Some interesting things there and maybe a couple little news bits that we'll pull from that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, a few cool things for the site. Uh, a couple of reviews that are in progress that you guys will see in the next couple of weeks. So I don't know. It's kind of an interesting time. Kind of uh, things are stirring. Things are being uh, put together. Things are all kind of coming together here. Let's just kind of get together and talk about what's going on in the world of RPGs. It was kind of fun to hang out with Josh last week to catch up on all the big Kingdom Hearts news as the big, big headliner for that. Uh, I guess, even though that was over a week ago, I do kind of wanted to see if there are any other impressions or takeaways from the other, uh, from Adam Chow or James, about what they saw from Kingdom Hearts 4 as we discussed, as we saw the trailer last week and the news that filtered from that. When do we think that's going to come out? How long do you think we'll be waiting for it? Five years. Late, late 2023 or early 2024? <laughs> Five years. I don't know. Maybe, I just, maybe I, we are just not that interested. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so early. I already, had, I already said anything you had to say about that, so it's just... Yeah. All right, so we'll just skip on past that. Uh, let's start with so a couple. We don't have any new reviews that are up on the site, but we do have a couple of features that are up on RPGSite.net uh, in the last week. Uh, one of them is from Nathan Lee, who did our Switch review of 13 Sentinels. He also put up a review during this week. It was the 10th anniversary of Fire Emblem Awakening. Which is, you know, obviously a very, you know, one of the most popular entries in the series that revitalized the series. And Nathan Lee, normally on our uh, social channels, we do kind of call out all these anniversaries and especially try to make highlights for the big ones like 10th, 15th, 20th. Uh, Nathan went together, uh, went ahead and put together a feature article about what Fire Emblem Awakening means to him, about the approach that intelligent systems and nintendo took with that title we kind of all know the story about how it kind of revitalized the franchise and brought it back into the mainstream instead of kind of the niche strategy series that it had been prior to that so if you're interested in reading about that we do have it up on the site currently as as i speak into the microphone right now it is our top banner article how accessibility tipped the fail tipped the scales for fire emblem awakening so Go ahead and give that a, a read. Fire Emblem has been one of my favorite series, and somehow I have not played Awakening. So it's kind of a big gap in my uh, in my history there. But it's, it's a really cool article for someone who was brought onto the series with Fire Emblem Awakening in a big way. So just want to give that a shout out since Nathan's obviously not here to uh, speak to it for himself. But that's up on the site. Yeah, it's a really cool feature from Nathan. And, and uh, you know the response to it was uh, re really cool to see because... You know, it's no surprise that Awakening is a lot of people's uh, first Fire Emblem uh, game, and just the, all all the really, really like uh, it really shifted like the focus of the series, and like for some people it's for better, some for people 
For some people, it's for worse. Um, but you know, the even even with the three houses, we it still has that sort of template that Fire Emblem Awakening uh, laid the laid the ground for. Obviously, and, and there are other advancements in other areas uh, of the RPG series. But you know, Fire Emblem Awakening was like it was a cool take on like on like a, a series that was like you know it as I, I know some people will try to deny it but the series was stagnating you know it wasn't really mm-hmm. finding much success and awakening if we wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about fire emblem today if awakening failed we wouldn't be having a second spin-off muzo game coming up this year <laughs> yeah talk about well, I- in my opinion, I don't think they would have been in that position if they didn't remake the original Fire Emblem so many some damn times. You know? It's like, nobody cares about Shadow Dragon anymore, you know? I think they just put themselves in that spot. Yeah. yeah it's a, and I think that's that's difficult because like, for some series you can do it with, for Fire Emblem, I don't think you can, but like for something like, say, Sakura Wars, for example, Chow, it's like, but that's what people really watch. It's like, I just go back to like all the old game because that's, pe- that's what people liked. And that, that's that's that that same thing can't be applied to Fire Emblem because the Fire Emblem game that people are fond of is not the first game. Yeah, the first game wasn't that great, to be honest. Yeah, so I do feel like if I were to engage Nathan in conversation, I wouldn't agree with him on every point. He's he mentions in his article about how his first, I believe, is he's implying his first two games were Sacred Stones and Path of Radiance, which did not which did not allow grinding. I guess Sacred Stones did allow some grinding with the tower and the ruins. But I don't you know. I actually kind of sacred stones. You can you can cheat right. your way through later on, and you can min max all your stats with that tower that you can do later on. I actually kind of enjoyed when uh, Fire Emblem didn't allow for grinding, but the whole point of Awakening is now it gives you the choice to do it if you want to, and you don't have to do it if you don't want to. So uh, obviously, we're in a place where Three Houses was really well received by pretty much everyone here, to at least some extent, and we've the future is looking bright. Just we will see. I know Chow is desperately waiting on whether or not that Fire Emblem 4 remake rumor that's been floating around for years ends up having any sort of truth to it. You know, that's my favorite game of all time. So mm-hmm. there's nothing that can stop me of changing that. So I do. I am looking forward to it. And I just what if it's live. true and they fuck it up, Chow? What happens then? I just play the Super Nintendo version. Um, it exists. It's like Final Fantasy 7. Uh, uh, I, I, I just play the original. Immediately went to that. He's like, I just play the, the game that's already my favorite <laughs> that's game. That's a reasonable person uh, response. <laughs> that's that's the correct response to that. Not... It's like, if they fuck up the Final Fantasy 7 remake, I'll just play the original. It still holds up to me. The other feature that's up on the site this week is one I'll be able to talk about more in depth because it uh, is one that James put together. And this feature is all about the... Uh, last major update to Final Fantasy XIV Endwalker, and that is uh, the 6.1 update whose title I am forgetting right now, and that is making me a new fan of it. Alright, thank you guys. Alright, I'll just hand it off to James right now, because like 6.1, oh crap, what is it called? Uh, Alright, James, and I, I know Chow has also played this as well, so he will be able to contribute alongside. Wow, a, uh, uh, a wonderful transition. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Needless to say, I've been playing basically just 14 for the last couple of weeks. Well, week and a half, I guess, because um, it's only been out since uh, two Tuesdays ago. Um, a lot of the changes are really, really welcome. Uh, first off, they have uh, it feels weird to say this because it kind of seems like they like from the outside looking in that they've done this a few times, but they've reworked Realm Reborn some more. Uh, last time around, it was the number of MSQ or main scenario quests 
And um, that was mostly focused on the patch quests because um, before patch 5.3 and Shadowbringers, the number of patch quests to get from the end of A Realm Reborn, so after you'd seen the A Realm Reborn credits to the beginning of Heaven's Word, was 100 quests, and then they shaved that down and also um, reduced the number of steps in the remaining quests. This time around, they have um, massively revamped the uh, A Realm Reborn dungeons, mostly out of necessity, because one of the new features they added with uh, this patch was they have uh, upgraded the previously um, previously known as the trust system into the duty support um, system now. And it has, uh, as of this patch, it has support for A Realm Reborn dungeons and four-person trials. So what that means is, is because of the way that the trust AI works, is they had to go back and revamp a number of the Aroma Born dungeons that were using the original like design idea of having dungeons that had like all these side paths. And while for the most part dungeons were still a straight line in Aroma Born, there were definitely a couple where the AI was expecting one thing because ever since like the end of Heaven's Word going forward, dungeons in in uh, 14 have been basically completely linear they went back and completely revamped some of these. So like uh, the big one that people have been looking towards and the one that the dev team themselves have even pointed to was the um, was Totorak or the Thousand Mods of Totorak, which uh, previously had a system where you had to pick up these um, photo cells in the dungeon and you had to place a certain number of them at these points in order to spawn a boss that you could then defeat to continue onward. Uh, it was a very winding dungeon. You could loop back on yourself. Uh, there was like alternate paths and all that. Uh, that's no longer the case. It is completely a straight line. The um, dungeon itself has uh, gotten a visual rework as well. It looks way, well, I would say way nicer, but it does look a decent bit nicer compared to how it looked before, like visually. Um, and I haven't messed around with too many of the dungeons, but apparently some other ones have seen some uh, reworkings. Similarly, uh, main scenario roulette has been completely changed. Uh, it used to be that there were these two um, eight-person duties at the end of A Realm Reborn that were infamous for being a slog. You had Castro Meridium, or however you pronounce it, and uh, the Praetorium. And they've completely changed it so that they have been uh, reworked to fit four people. And um, Praetorium especially, they have completely changed the dungeon itself and have split it into two. So the Praetorium itself, now you can't ignore all the mobs. You actually have to engage with them, but it's much more straightforward. And instead of it being an hour plus affair, they've basically cut off the second half of it and made it a trial. So the ultimate weapon is now its own trial, and then there is a solo duty for the final like encounter after that. So, so they massive, basically made massive. the story part of it a single player friendly instead of having to find a group yeah, of players yeah. to spend an hour with yeah, in this place. Like, it was a worse content in the game because uh, there will be like new players that want to play it for the story, and there's old players that were cleared it, so they don't want to see the story. So when when you know to best find the best of the two worlds, they made all the cutscenes unskippable, so you're forced to watch a scene over and over again. That's like five minutes long for cutscenes. So it's like, and it adds up the time. So, and so it now it's just, 
And it didn't really help the experience for new players because the whole reason they made the uh, cutscenes unskippable was, well, we don't want players to like be stuck in the first cutscene, and then by the time they're out of it, they um, they see that they have uh, the duties finished, or in some cases, even they made it. It was, I, I believe, the problem was is that if you were watching the cutscenes normally and everyone else wasn't they would just leave you behind. And by the time they were done with it, you wouldn't even be able to see all the cutscenes because there would be a timer on the rest of the instance. Once it's been cleared, that sort of thing. But, so um, I want to back up here and just feel like, I mean, like I think this sort of stuff is actually really, really good, especially games that have, you know, one decade, two decade long planned lifetime to make sure that this old content is kept up to the current design standards and, you know, convenient to play through, even if you're behind the curve and you're just starting Final Fantasy 14 in 2022. But I do think it's interesting that that's what you opened with, with your impressions of 6.1. Was this like the major focus of the patch or was it just the one part uh, that you no, was no. most interesting? Uh, I felt like it was the best place to start. There was a lot with 6.1. Like, I mean, even my impressions, I've said that uh, patch 6.1 feels like more than just the simple patch. Like, you look at each of these things in isolation and like this stuff with a realm reborn, they didn't even really hype it up as much as the 5.3 stuff where they condensed the patch quests and added flying to realm reborn zones. But it's, there's an argument to be made that for the majority of the player base, well, maybe not the ones at Endgame, obviously, but the majority of the player base in the future, this is the most significant part of the patch. Because anyone coming into the game now is going to have a much more smooth transition to the current content because there won't be this divide between, oh, this is how the game was like in A Realm Reborn. This is how the dungeons were like. This is how things were expected to be handled in A Realm Reborn. And then you come over to like Heaven's Ward and suddenly it's like, why are these dungeons completely different from what I'm used to? It's a much more seamless transition. It's uh, there is a bit of a shame. I feel like there is a bit of a shame that some of Realm Reborn's characters being shaped down, but it's undeniably better for the game as a whole because for anyone coming into the game now, they're not going to have that whiplash. And that's like for the best. Well, I had mentioned how like I had, I had read about the um, the Stellaris custodian team, how they have a whole team just dedicated to making sure that old content is up to par and i've seen we've seen some games do it well and some games do it poorly like i've never played this game but it still surprises me whenever i read about like destiny's vaulting system where they just say like you can't play this anymore you know oh yeah like. yeah yeah i mean i, I literally I, i'm looking at my destiny 2 forsaken disc on my shelf right now and it's like it's well no it's not even a disc because it was uh, just a uh but yeah i paid for that I think the only thing that was part of that collection that's still in the game is the Dreaming City, and that's it. But anyways, back to 14. Um, but yeah, 14's done a really good job of uh, keeping content relevant and upgrading it to be more in line with the rest of the experience. Like, I wasn't around when this was a thing, but the Diadem used to be the endgame activity in Heaven's Word that was kind of similar to what would later become Eureka and Baza in Stormblood and Shadowbringers, respectively. That content, as it was, is no longer in the game, but instead it has been retooled. It was retooled into a sort of content for gatherers and crafters in Shadowbringers with the Ashgard Restoration. So they basically took the same, like some of the same content and they retooled it for use in a different context. 
even though the original content's not in the game anymore, it's not like it's completely gone and there's still something for people to get an idea for how that content was. And the majority of the player base seems to agree that the original Diadem wasn't really good content. So it's not really a huge loss. But it's still interesting that they they constantly do that. And I think that's a good transition because um the in my opinion, the biggest change with this patch is PvP. Uh and I wasn't really expecting that heading in because they told us that they were adding in a new PvP mode and they said that they were doing some PvP revamp, uh, revamp with the actions and whatnot. But I didn't really expect them to have such a massive overhaul because every single job in the game has been completely redone in PvP. Uh, so I, I want to interrupt you for like just two for two reasons. Even as an outsider, I like I noticed like during live letters when people that I follow on Twitter are like following along and commenting on it. Previously in in other years, whenever they talk about PvP, I kind of people see like literally just zone out and like ZZZ whatever. No one cares about this. And yet in the past like week, I've seen people say like, "Yes, I've reached diamond or platinum or crystal." I forget the exact tiers. And like this is the most I've seen as an outsider through osmosis. People talking about like the Final Fantasy fourteen PvP, I don't know, seasons or leagues or whatever they're called. So even from an outsider's perspective, I can see that people are really engaging with what they've touched up and tooled up with the six point one release. Yeah, um, so all of the changes with um, the movesets also apply to front lines, but the massive change for PvP with 6.1 mostly centers around the complete retooling of ranked PvP, because frontline was the more casual mode where it's 24v24v24, 24 24 24. it's a clusterfuck. Anyone that tells you strategies to how for how to uh, win in frontline is lying to you because it's all luck. It's all luck. It doesn't matter. With 24v24v24, 24 24 24, it's all down to luck or draw who you get and how coordinated people are. I'll tell there's, you. There is very, very little that you can do as an individual in front line that will actually impact the results. But um, anyways. What were you going to uh, say, Chow? I was going to yeah. say, in front lines, it all depends on uh, if there's someone coordinating. Usually, if there's someone coordinating, there, there is a good chance of winning. I, I would say if you join the Immortal Flames... That's their best chance. <laughs> yeah. I my frontline match last night was the Immortal Flames and we got absolutely pulverized. So that's well, I, I don't understand what this new PvP mode is. Like uh, um, okay. basically it's Overwatch. You it, it's it's payload. It's payload. Basically it's um so Crystalline Conflict is the new PvP mode. It completely uh replaces the feast, which was the previous ranked PvP, which was just four v four, like kind of Deathmatch elimination. It, not many people liked it. Not many people played it. There, uh, apparently, one of the big problems with it is that the people that were entrenched in PvP just win traded to get the mounts and like everything every tier, which is God. I feel like that's. What I've I've read that endless one. It's too easy. And when, when people when you tie rewards behind PvP, people will do what they need to to, to get. Well, them. I, I heard people are cheating in the new PvP mode already. Oh they yes, have, um, yes. There's. Tools let's to look at let, let's let's talk about the game mode first then we'll get to that <laughs> so crystalline conflict is a 5v5 payload type deal uh there is a central crystal on each map and you want to push it to the other like the uh, goal near the other team's base 
Um, each map has a midpoint for both teams. And once you get to the midpoint, the crystal will lock in place until you have uh, kept control of the crystal for a certain amount of time. Then it can proceed forward. Uh, each map has its own gimmick, or most maps have their own gimmick. One of them is pretty standard, where it's just like there's no gimmick, but one has um, periodically a like wind, like like a little hurricane will knock people upwards unless they um, uh, unless they uh, either well everyone will be knocked upwards unless they guard, and if you fall back down, you'll take damage and be stunned for like a second unless you uh, specifically um, let yourself get knocked up below a black chocobo feather that'll let you stick your landing so there's like a bit of a strategy where it's like oh i can guard and i'll make sure that i won't be stunned but then my guard will be up and if somebody grabs a black chocobo feather that that's a great opportunity for them to use like a limit break or something to try and uh, take advantage of that because they know that oh i can't block i can't guard i'm a sitting duck and there's like strategy like that and then there's another map where periodically there will be these um bombs that will spawn and it's kind of like Bomberman, where it's like they'll shoot out in the cardinal directions and you need to stay out of those aoe's because they'll do massive damage but you can how also many maps are there them. uh i believe there's three is there three chowers or four i think there's three. um there's a i say there's three that's yeah, there's what three. i've seen there's one that looks like kind of like a sports field then there's one kind of like windmill, and the other place looked like a kind of like a volcanic location. That's all I've seen so far, unless yeah. there's an extra one. Yeah, but the map variety is good enough. Um, well, I, yeah, I wasn't I'd... saying there should be more. I actually think like a good PvP mode, and you see this in like League of Legends and things like that. If the if the core systems are good, you don't need oh yeah, maps yeah. With different gimmicks. You just need a handful. Yeah, I think the uh, yeah, I think the three maps is plenty enough variety, and uh, but yeah, like pvp is completely different like the class identity is shocking because like one of the problems that well one of the complaints that some people have had with 14 over the last couple of years is that it feels like class identity has been shaved down a little bit in the name of balance that is not the case in pvp every single class feels incredibly different every single class has a unique limit break that has unique characteristics for example warrior has this limit break that You'll send out a shout, and then it will immediately buff you, but anyone that's caught in the shout's radius can't guard for like 15 seconds or something like that, which means that it there are some really like cool plays you can do with that, where it's like you shout, now they can't guard, that gives you an opportunity to slam down the stun, and if your team capitalizes on it, you can do like a team wipe if somebody else like like a, say a dragoon or something or anyone else that has an aoe um limit break that deals a lot of damage can tie into that and it's like it's a very fast-paced mode uh yoshi p said that they planned to try and make it so that most fights well most matches are done in five minutes and that's what the time limit is it can't go into overtime but most of the time matches are done within five minutes or less and it's it's nice quick it's nice and fast-paced it's a lot of fun and really that's the most important thing like pvp before folks it felt like they tolerated it for the rewards but despite the issues with uh crystal conflict and there is like issues people are having fun with this and people keep wanting to play it i keep wanting to play it there's times where it's like oh just one more match you get that going on and it's like it's a lot of fun and what rank are you oh, silver 
But at least I'm not bronze. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That, no, I, I wouldn't be any better than you. Ciao, where yeah. you at? Bronze. Rip. <laughs> I had a bad losing streak, and I dropped all the way down. Rip. Uh, though the way that rankings work in Crystalline Conflict is once you reach a rank, you can't drop from, like, say, gold to silver. Um, so once you reach gold, you're always gold for a tier. So that's pretty good. But, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, is there anything else you want to say about the PvP, uh, Chow? I guess you want to talk about the PvP plugins that people have been using? Well, there's other cheats, too. There's another exploit, too. Apparently, with the White Mage, you can do infinity heals, because they're heal too. If you cancel the animation during the second cure, you get your full cure stack back. Oh, yeah, so that's, that's, abusing that's, that too. that's obviously a bug, and I don't think people are going to get action for that, but the there there's definitely been some matches where I've been kind of sus about some of the people on the other team it's like that reaction time does not seem possible considering how much delay this game's netcode has where it's like hmm i'm not sure about that chief but yeah there's these pvp plugins that will automatically like because they one of the problems of 14 is that all the data coming both in like into the client and out to the servers are unencrypted now that can work. That can be good for some re- um, some instances. People use these um, plugins like No Clippy that makes it so that players that maybe don't have as good ping to the server will be able to execute some jobs that are more ping dependent, like Machinist or Gunbreaker, that sort of thing. Uh, that's great. I think those those uh, add-ons and plugins are good because it's helping deal with an inherent flaw of the game itself and its netcode. There's PvP plugins that because all of this data is unencrypted, they will read a, a skill that, let's say, a warrior is doing and immediately respond with a, uh, like if they're a white mage, they'll use polymorph to immediately make it so that they can't follow up on a stun, which... and. In regular play, yes, you can react and make it so they can't follow up. But when it's like a split second right after I activate that skill, I don't know about that. Because, <laughs> deli- yeah. But, Sounds um, pretty sus to me. Yeah. Is, um, are the PvP modes cross-play? Like, is it console players and PC players? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Everything right. in 14's cross-play. So, hopefully they do something about it. Yeah, I mean, there's an emergency patch coming pretty soon in two days. Yeah, so. but that's not that's not for the PvP stuff. That's just to implement the uh, results of the housing, which, uh, yeah, that's another thing that happened this uh, patch. Uh, we got more player housing. It was a clusterfuck. First off, like, everyone agrees that there should be more free company housing. But free one company of the, housing? No, personal housing. You mean. No, 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 no. There should be more free company housing than personal housing because free companies need to have a house more than, pe- than personal player, like singular players need to have a house because with free companies, if you don't have a house, you don't have access to um, expeditions, which means that you can't get certain like materials that are necessary for buffs and also for, well, yeah, buffs. That That's, that's important. And... Um, free company can house many more people than any individual housing so it makes sense why they decided with 6.1 to change it so that housing wards have uh, more free company um, free company housing wards than personal housing wards but i definitely feel like the balance has not been struck uh in leviathan there's like now only like 20 
something like that, like personal houses that are going to be opened up with the next lottery when they added in like several hundred with uh, Ishgard and a lot of these um, FC houses are now stuck in per- well, grandfathered into personal wards. A lot of play- uh, people that migrated um, from a personal house in any of the now free company wards. Now that's just another extra slot for free companies. Whereas of right now, if you look at all the uh, housing wards in like the Imperium, the new Ishgard housing zone, it's like there's plenty of spots open. There didn't need to be these many uh, words for free companies. <laughs> it's just oh, unfortunate. Yeah, I'm going to ask a question that might be blasphemous because I've seen from a distance the housing kerfuffle, the lottery thing, like the the it could roll zero, things like that. Yeah, Did but you like win, technically, I mean, or I mean, that's not what I mean. I mean, it's like let's just say that the bug didn't occur. Would you? Would you yeah, let, 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 let Brian finish his thought here. Like, yeah. oh, here's my thought: How come for for player housing? An individual player's house, like why are there limited lots? Can't they just instance it where each player just gets their own like version of a house map? It's because it's because Yoshi P when he played MMOs when he was younger, he he played MMOs that had non-instanced housing and he likes the the idea of people having neighbors that they can actually see on the map. Uh, <laughs> do you agree Brian? <laughs> uh, i mean i can sort of think it's cool like you're you're in like whatever limsa limsa or whatever i don't know the ff14 cities and going to like a residential ward and saying like ah oh, these are houses that people actually have but, but like the flip the, side the storytelling the world building case. of that yeah. is kind of fun but is that is that worth the trade-off of like having a literal housing lottery system now, obviously, different people have different different opinions on this, but I feel like both Chow and I are of, of the same opinion here. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that new housing, it's a bit of a clusterfuck. Uh, as uh, we've already alluded to, there was a bug where uh, some houses would roll zero. Uh, fortunately, according to the dev team, they had actual results on their end. So it wasn't just a, oh no, we forgot to exclude zero from the uh, rolls. Uh, so there's going to be emergency maintenance in a few days. They have actual results for everyone that, uh, applied to lotteries. So that should be fixed. Uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, they, uh, rebalance the number of FC versus personal words because there's very clearly an imbalance right now uh, i would like to get a house I-, I was going for a medium i didn't win it I-, I i will settle for a small for now just please rebalance it please but anyways housing not much else to say there they added more of it people are happy people are upset because uh, housing is probably the one system that really really needs a, a rework in 14 right now just like in real life yeah it's like whew. but um yeah, so there's all that. Uh, there was new story. There's new MSQ. There's a new dungeon. It's uh, setting up. It's well, it's beginning to set up the next story arc for 14 because obviously with 6.0, they closed out the story arc that the entire game had been building to for the last decade. So this is an entirely new story. Obviously, I'm not going to talk about it here. If you're caught up on 14, you already know that there's like lots of hints. It's 
interesting stuff going on. It's I feel like it's off to a good start. I'm not sure. Chow, do you feel the same way? Do you feel that that's a promising start to a new story arc? I do. Um, I think the biggest thing is, I think everyone got uh, debated with this new story, because when you read that title, A Newborn Adventure, it's not quite (laughs) quite what it implies. I think what the story arc was set up is like how they would able to expand their saga for another 10 years. So I'd be interested to see where it goes. Yeah. But yeah, that's interesting. Not much else to say there, because again, it's story. Go play it. Uh, We got the first... Um, Alliance Raid in the new Alliance Raid series, and I feel like it's pretty unanimous that people love it. Like, uh, I, I know a lot of people were kind of mixed on the near Alliance Raid series, like your Hot Dark Apocalypse and Shadowbringers. I thought the last one was good. Wasn't a big fan of the first two. Everyone loves Aglaia, the uh, new Alliance Raid for the new Myths of the Realm uh, series. I People... J- People just love it. I, I I love it. I think the um, mechanics for all the different fights is really cool. They brought back voice acting. Everything's cinematic. Like the art style and everything is really, really cool. The scale, the scope is really cool, which is good because I think both uh, Chow and I agree. The new Extreme Trial is a massive disappointment. Yeah, it was kind of just the same fight, just harder. <laughs> no, not anything. even the same. Not even the same fight. It's like they said, oh, this is starting in the second phase. It, it just uses the first phase mechanics. And most of the like mechanics from the first phase aren't even here. And it's like, really, the fight is just two things. These like ring mechanics, which is like, oh, remember which order this is in and go to this section of the map. Well, section of the uh, stage. And then the collisions. And the collisions are cool but also who boy party finder cannot deal with the uh orange planet collisions because they're one hit ko's and it's like if they if they don't have spatial awareness it's like not well, a good time. I, I can't deal not with four planets four planet ko you tell me that uh, you want to get knocked back into the into the red planet exploding uh, that's pretty hard to dodge one that one yeah yeah but uh anyways um is there anything else to talk about? We talked about PP. Oh, adventure plates. Uh, adventure don't do plates. Naughty guys. Yeah, adventure plates is one of these new features where, um, and it's kind of tied into PvP because every time you start up a new crystalline conflict match, you will see everyone's adventure. Well, well not adventure plates, but their portrait, and so you can set them. It's kind of like a um, ex. Not really expanded, but it's kind of like G-Pose, but now you can have like a portrait for yourself and you can you can tie it to an adventure plate that will give information about like what times you usually play on weekdays and weekends, what sort of content you like to do. You can first it up with all of these different like visual effects. You can have like different borders. You can have different. Um, it's just really cool. And I feel like it's a well, this is definitely unanimous. It's one of those features that. Maybe you didn't understand how nice it was before you had it, but now that you have it, it's like, man, I can't believe that we just got this. I can't believe we haven't just had this forever. <laughs> so yeah, and some people need to get bonked like Chow. What? Yeah. what do I do? We're gonna get yeah, yeah. Chow <laughs> by his own words. <laughs> I I have set up my uh, adventure plate with this emblem to make it look like my character has a womb tattoo. <laughs> Well, well, I don't think you're saying if, if I get banned, 
I got some okay, free time again. So, okay, to, 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 not necessarily defend you, Chow, but there's like, you know, there's this popular social media tweet going around that's kind of misleading people into the real story because this certain individual on social media had a, a very spicy, naughty adventurer plate, but then people found out, oh, they had a OnlyFans link in your search. Like, what did you expect? So, like, it's not necessarily for the the visuals on that plate, but I think it's more so that they were promoting their Josh, only fans. Josh, on there. So, uh, yeah. there was also somebody that directly asked the GM if the adventure plates themselves or, or the portraits themselves are actionable, and uh, the GM confirmed that they are. Now, granted, but we don't, but we don't know to what extent. Like, they, they won't yeah. give, like, they won't give, they're so, from what I understand, they're very vague on, like, what's the threshold. Yeah. And so, also, I, I, I think, I think the only fans link, like, promoting your only fans, through FF14 like that, I think, yes, that's a violation. Yeah, yeah. But as for actual, like, visuals, we don't actually know what the threshold is because the language provided is so, like, I, I don't know where you can even, like, start to measure, like, you know, is this bannable, is this not, or suspendable, yeah. et cetera. Um, so I, 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 don't, I, don't think, I don't think that's necessarily on, like, the user's end, like, their fault if the language is so vague like that. They need yeah. to give, like, clearer... Uh, like rules around that if they want to like prevent it like you know? um was it there was like the third uh was it their uh, terms of agreement it took a very long time before they updated and the terms got very i don't know muddy over the years i think back then that they, they didn't do much with like uh stalking and harassing but now i think there is some kind uh, of they still like don't that. do enough about that um but that's a topic for another day but <laughs> But, so yeah, I, I have I one question how... as an outsider back to trying to get this back on track uh, for the story stuff. So this is a new story arc, but uh, with each expansion, they raise the level cap. Are you expected to be like at max level before you approach this arc or can you approach it? For, like if I start the game, am I expected to work my way through Stormblood, Shadowbringers, Endwalker before I can uh, play yes. Newfound Expeditions or whatever it's called? Yes, I can or yes, I have to. You have to because you'll ah, reach okay. max level before the story's over, and there'll be a bunch of like post, like game content, and you'll be still max level by then. So obviously, you'll be max level. Okay, and no, I was just curious. You're also restricted because there's certain dungeons that won't even let you go in without the levels. So because I know that Final Fantasy 14 has some sort of like level scaling. I don't know what the official in-game term is, where you can only use abilities that you have that you would have had before like being a certain place if you're synced and i was wondering if it was going to use that sort of thing where it's like here's a new low level experience that you can play through if you haven't played endwalker but you level sync if you have or something like that i was just curious about like how it was like mechanically implemented so the fact that it's just continuing the linear story even if it's a new arc pretty straightforward easy to understand did you have yeah, any I other think... final thoughts on the 6.1 uh, new story arc, new updates on Final Fantasy XIV. I think that's it for now. Um, the new Ultimate Raid will be added to the game this upcoming Tuesday with uh, 6.11. Uh, so that'll be interesting. Um, not sure if Chow's going to be going for it, but uh, uh, I'm uh, I, My going static to needs to clear it. I cleared it, but my static hasn't cleared it. We're stuck on current call, and now that we're blaming the healers for not healing enough, which is what I play... But I, I clear it in Party Finder, no problem. I, I don't know. <laughs> so maybe maybe something's wrong. I don't know. Maybe you got carried yeah, in Party Finder. 
Yeah, and then not to mention, not just clearing, but if you're going for ultimate, everyone needs to be Biss, which means you guys are going to have to keep clearing the fight to keep getting gear, which means you guys are a few weeks, maybe a few months away from... Uh, yeah, we're definitely uh, behind, so that's, that's for sure. Um, I feel like... When I do it with my static, I feel like no one knows how to do the mechanic without the raid leader spelling it out. While I did it in Party Finder, I did it blindly without like voice chat. So I think that helps. I think if people kind of know what to do ahead without relying on the voice, I think it will do much favor for a team. But I, I don't know. I think it's too hard to tell a team to change their strategy and approach in, in the middle of a fight. Well, we'll look forward to hearing James's, uh, I don't know, experience with the new ultimate trial that's going to be added. Is that, will you be, be able to talk about that by next week or is it a few weeks out? I'll be able to talk about initial impressions uh, next week. I'll have uh, two days of uh, raid prog down, I think two, maybe three. But uh, yeah, I've got a static for it. Um, all of us are BIS uh, geared up, ready for it. Uh, we're all competent, thankfully. Um, so uh, I believe should be you. a good time. How how long do you think it'll take for the world's top raiders to clear this new ultimate? Two weeks, maybe a little less. Well, thanks for sharing your impressions. And again, James did write up his experience with six point one up on the site. So go ahead and check that out. It's currently not a cover article. By the time this gets published, I will make sure it is a cover article. So it'll be there right at the top for you to click on if you're interested in reading it. And we'll just kind of go on to other games that people have been playing this week. And I will hand it off to Adam since he was another person that wasn't able to be here last week. You were in the middle of just some life stuff. And but I do know that in that time you had kind of picked something random to start playing that I'm interested in hearing you talk about. So I'll just hand it off to you and just let you take it away. Yeah. So two weeks ago, I had mentioned I was playing a bunch of like smaller titles, uh, things like the original Star Ocean and a bunch of East games. And one reason for that is because I'm in the middle of a big move uh, for my job. And so that's also why I wasn't on the podcast last week. And so I'm now settled into my new city. I'm here in Boise, Idaho. Uh, but I don't have a lot of like my, my, I don't have my gaming PC set up. I don't have my console set up right now. Um, so I'm playing uh, some games that I can emulate on my laptop. Uh, and right now I'm playing Emerald Dragon. I should mention I do own a cart of this. So I do own a copy of the game. Um, now, has any have any of you heard of Emerald Dragon? I know one of you has. I have heard of it. I okay. own it. Oh, well. The PC Engine version, but I do not own like the original like PC eighty eight or PC ninety eight version. Those are yeah. like those Emerald Dragon to me sounds to like a game that's made up for like a sitcom. Like, oh, it's a new game, Emerald Dragon. Just like two like words that fit together that could just be a generic game title. <laughs> yeah, so Emerald Dragon is a game that I believe originally released in nineteen eighty nine for like the PC eighty eight and ninety eight. Um, so it's a thirty two three year old game or whatever. So very old. Now, I actually played the Super Famicom remake of it. Uh, that's the one I think is probably the most uh, popular because it's the one that has an English fan translation. It was This game was never released in English officially on any platform. Uh, Chow said, uh, if you didn't hear him, that he played the PC Engine version, which I understand that the original versions, the Super Famicom version, and the PC Engine versions are all just a little bit different. Um, anyways, the reason why I played this game is that a friend of mine is a, is pretty fond of it and kind of is 
like an evangelist for this game. And I just kind of figured, huh, I'm, I need something to, to occupy my time as I'm kind of, as I had some downtime during this move. So why not give it a run through? So Emerald Dragon is a very classically styled RPG that you play as a character who is a dragon and they get transformed for reasons into like into a an human, emerald. into a human <laughs> with dragon-like powers. So kind of Breath of Fire-ish in that sense. And you are basically uh, uh, in the middle of a kind of conflict or war between the dragon folks, humans, demons, and also this ancient race called the Horus. Now I'm using the, uh, the fan translation terms. Uh, and so it's a really... It's, when it's you say classically games. styled, do you mean like uh, lineup turn-based sixteen-bit uh, style? What do you mean? Actually, no. I mean I, the battle system is actually a little bit different. Um, but in terms of just kind of like the overall structure of the game, you're going from town to town to dungeon to town on an overworld map and things like that. Uh, anyways, the gameplay itself, or I should back up a second. Um, this game is. Originally, you know, a very old game. So it does have some weird quirks just for being, you know, kind of a very early entry into the RPG genre before, you know, certain conventions kind of got locked in or nailed down. Um, But it does do some interesting things for its time. Like, for example, even the original version, I believe, in 1989 had a form of party chat where after certain events, you can just go to the menu and basically access this party chat feature where the characters will talk to each other about like what's going on and what to do. Uh, you know, that's not like in today's day, that's not anything, but like considering this was more than 30 years ago, that's pretty cool. And there's a couple of cool things and how it, and how it incorporates like characters, stats and abilities, but uh, the combat itself is actually kind of unique. I don't know if I've played a game quite like it. It's you only control the main character. His name is Atrushan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Atrushan. Uh, and, um, the Japanese voice acting uh, in the PC Engine version, it's like Atarushan. That's how they said it. It sounded really weird. Yeah, Yeah. so he's a dragon that. guy, and he's the only player you control. And then in the battle, in battle, it's like a top-down view of like a grid, almost tactical RPG. It's not isometric. It's like literally top-down, um, like a chessboard, only top-down, and you're with characters instead of pawns. And you only control the main character, and you basically have... It's actually very... This is going to be a bad a bad example or, uh, here, but it's kind of Valkyria Chronicles-ish, where you have an action meter, and your movement and your abilities cost so much action. And so you can move on this field, and then if you run into another enemy on the field, you literally just kind of bump into them, and you, would, you can do an attack on them. And a movement costs action, your action meter attacking cost and action meter. But again, you're, there's basically this positioning element where you're positioned on the field uh, and where the enemies are, where your, where your allies are, it all, it all matters. And so considering this game is as old as it is, I thought that was kind of interesting that this game was doing these sorts of things back then. Granted, I was playing a remade version of it. And you control only the main character and all your allies just kind of act on their own. And for the most part, they're pretty smart. Like you have your healer character. Uh, what's her name again? Oh, shoot. Tamria. There's a couple of healer characters. There's Tamria and Farron. And um, I'm trying to remember. What's the childhood friend's name? The, the green that, hair. That's the Tamria. I, I, let me look it up. Make sure I get it right. 
I think like Tamrin, Tamrin. Yeah, Tamrin. Yeah. And so what I'm getting at is that the characters do a pretty good job at like the AI keeping you healed and keeping you alive. And like, I actually didn't have to worry about that too much, but you know, it's a pretty basic game, all things considered. And uh, I am glad I kind of played it on an emulator because the AI can take a long time to, to take their turns. So you, you do your turn and then you just kind of wait for all the enemies and all the, all your allies to act. And then it's your turn again. To be so, honest, that sort of thing is not, that that problem has not been solved. Uh, there's a game, recent games that I've played that have run into that issue where you have to wait forever between Wasteland Three is one of those. Yeah, so it's kind of nice. It was kind of nice on the emulator. Admittedly, I could like do my turn and then like press fast forward as all the allies do their things and all the enemies do their things. Um, there are some weird elements to this game, uh, like maybe just from back then, people were still learning how to make a game like this. Like for example. The items that you get in chess, for some reason, even like at the very end of the game, you can find items in chess that are just like completely useless. Like you're in the final dungeon, you have like millions of gold and you open a chest and it has like 100 gold. It's just like, why? (laughs) Like, why did you decide to fill this chest with 100 gold? It's basically useless. Um, There's also some other weird points to it. Your character, Atrishan, and the, uh, your childhood friend, character tamran they're like the main two characters they level up normally but then like the other three characters they don't you have five characters in battle and they kind of like final fantasy 2's fourth party member those those other three characters they they shift around a lot in battle in terms of like during different points of the story which characters are on your team they're they're constantly changing around there's uh farin there's like the prince character. There's like an old mage character. There's an archer character. There's another archer character. There's like a monk. And so they, they all like shift around a lot. And it's kind of annoying because your battle composition changes a lot. And also their, their levels are kind of just set um, wherever, depending on where you are in the story. But doing certain like side quests that they're not really marked at all. You know, it's an old game. And you just have to talk to NPCs and go places and hope you run into one sometimes certain side quests would like raise a character's level kind of arbitrarily. So I was following a guide to make sure I didn't like miss any of these. Like for example, I had a character who at the end of the game was level 53, which was a low level at that point. And all the rest of my characters were around like 80, 90. And he was like dying in battle all the time because he was such a low level, but you just go to some random town that you don't really need to go to and talk to some random character. And he's like, Oh, drink this potion. And then your character will like, powers up because it's like a power potion. So weird stuff like that. He like raises himself from like level 53 to level 83 or whatever. Um, so there's a couple of weird quirks like that. Uh, the story itself is actually kind of endearing for its age. It reminds me a lot of Final Fantasy IV in that, because uh, Final Fantasy IV also kind of has shifting around characters. Um, only in this game, when a character dies, they tend to stay dead. And it's actually kind of like moving in ways how it treats like character death in terms of, of, you know, Final Fantasy four, it's all just like fake outs, right? (laughs) For the most part. Spoilers. Yeah. For Final Fantasy four in this game, there's a couple of character deaths and it, it actually like plays roles in the story in terms of like character motivations and things like that. And I don't know. I kind of felt like it was actually uh, pretty well done. The, 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 
the conflict itself is pretty standard. Like there's an evil demon king. He wants to rule the world. Uh, there's a twist at the end, but it still basically comes down to we got to save the world from being conquered from a ruling from some, you know, antagonist. But for the most part, you know, it's pretty enjoyable if you kind of put yourself in that mindset that this game was uh, made 30 years ago. So, yeah, it was a good experience. You kind of have to accept some of the oddities that it has. Uh, but uh, it was a good experience and I enjoyed playing it. And I kind of see why, like, my friend was, you know, I was actually going to ask you about know, that. So I, I was going to say basically, so now, so you, you've finished or are you just near the end? I finished, yeah. I was just going to say, like, now that you've played it, and with the impressions that you've guessed given, do you understand why this person was so, as you put it, evangelical about this game? Was it the story? Was it the gameplay? Was it just like a unique vibe to it? It's the sort of thing where like, so I play the Super Famicom version. Now, if you compare it to other like Super Nintendo or Super Famicom games, it doesn't really hold up because it's older. Like it's like seven years older than those mostly. And so, like, if you're comparing it to, you know, Chrono Trigger or Final Fantasy VI or what have you, it's probably not as good. I mean, it isn't. But if you kind of go into it with the mindset that, like, this is one of the earliest RPGs, you know, made before 1990 and kind of have that sort of academic uh, viewpoint, like viewing it in terms of how they were kind of creating this game back then, then it's sort of interesting on that in that sense. And it's more like kind of its RPG structure and design from a historical standpoint. So you kind of have to have like the right mindset going into it, I think, which the, my friend certainly has that. Does, have your friend played the PC Engine version? I believe they played uh, the original and Super Nintendo or Super Famicom. Oh, these guys are missing out. Tell them to try the PC Engine version. Ciao, what is it? What is it about the PC Engine version that? The VCM version has the best graphics of all the versions. You also get voice acting, and you also got like an like kind of like budget anime cutscenes. You know how the PC Engine has like those still image drawn, but mm. like I'm saying, this, this is the definitive version if there is one. And sadly, there is no English patch, but hopefully someday. I mean, the PC Engine scene is still growing. So that, that, that's uh, that's the hard thing, right? Like once a, a a version of an old game gets a fan translation, it's very rare for the same games other version to get a fan translation also well guess what i mean you know what i'm playing right i'm playing ogre battle on the sega saturn you know you think that in a game that already has an english translation already you would never think that there's a retranslation of a game right i mean (laughs) all right well good luck i guess on getting that other version of fan translation it's not it's not to me it's not it's not the hardest game to like just play native language also even if you don't understand yeah i mean you could memorize the whole super nintendo version and use that to to like pc engine version i mean you could do that you heard it here guys just play play the pc engine version regardless of whether you speak japanese there you go yeah yeah the last thing i'll say and this is probably a combination of both its age and just like translation limitations but it does sort of have that like secret of mana kind of bluntness to its dialogue where it's just kind of like everyone speaks very plainly and kind of you have to get to the next, like what's the next plot point, the next plot B, things like that. And it's, it's probably just, you know, partially how games were written back then, but also, you know, they, they only had so many lines and to, to work with, with like importing uh, an English translation to the game that they kind of had to be very terse. So it's kind of got that 
we've you've seen that before if you played like the original version of Secret of Mana or Chrono Trigger or whatnot. But otherwise, you know, that's what it is. I was also going to say, uh, have you heard about the sequel? It there was like a Kickstarter for an audio drama sequel, something like that. Is that what you mean? Yeah, the original creator tried to like, get funding to make a sequel, and yeah, I think he did get the funding to make it. The only problem is he couldn't secure the rights, so he had to like use all the original characters and like for for the sequel or something like that. I mean, they got some big names in in, in the sequel voice in that audio drama. I mean, they got uh. What, what, what is his name? Uh, Tomosaku uh, Sugiya? Oh, Sugida? And is, this is all pretty yeah. recent stuff? Here, uh, this is from Wikipedia. Uh, the creator is Akihiro Kimura. Success- successfully crowdfunded a sequel audio series titled Elemental Dragon in 2015. It's right. based on ideas that were proposed for a sequel to Emil Dragon back to the 1990s, but never got off the ground due to apparent copyright issues. Um, though Kimura has made several... Uh, novel, Dujin novels continuing the story over the years. The series is designed to get around copyright issues by focusing on new characters and slightly changing names such as the title uh, and allow hope, hopefully allow Kimura to generate interest for a true sequel to Emerald Dragon to retain the copyright. So I guess the audio drama did come out, but they're still, as of seven years ago, was still hoping to get copyright availability to make a sequel, I guess. But you know, it sounds like the Fire Emblem creator. What was that? Uh, Kaga? His uh, game? What was it? Uh, what was that game that he created? Vestaria Saga? Or something. Yeah, he's, you know, Vestaria Saga, the, the second game is coming out this year in English sometime. Praise to these guys. It's kind of crazy that we have Kickstarters making like spiritual successors to games because like of copyright legal issues and then people making just kind of like uh love letters to games that they enjoy that publishers are no longer supporting so you kind of get it from both directions but no it's been cool to hear i know you weren't here last week adam but since you have been not able to play on your on your normal you know pc and consoles that you've been just trying out the east games and uh the original star ocean one and now uh emerald dragon so it's cool to kind of get that sort of juxtaposition of the new and the uh and the classic up here on the podcast right next to each other so one game that i've been playing recently is a game that i've mentioned on the podcast that i wanted to get to it was a late march release i believe it was late march and that is weird west so this game is a game that i just didn't want to fall through the cracks because i thought it had an interesting premise it's kind of like a supernatural isometric well i don't know mid 1800s cowboys versus aliens sort of thing i've only played it for about like three or four hours. And unfortunately, my impressions, like I, I'd like to say like, oh, wow, this is a hidden gem, guys. You should make sure you don't forget this. But right now, like my impressions are really kind of whelmed. So you start out and you... Float. Before you keep going, one thing I wanted to mention for those not familiar is that the creative director for this game is Raf Colantonio, who was one of the, basically the leads on the reboot of Prey. So it's it has, obviously it's a different like perspective of game, but it's, uh, I know that one thing that they were kind of pushing uh, was that it has similar immersive sim DNA as Prey did. I'll put it this way. So uh, the the very basic premise is that you are in like a dream state and you see a character in like almost like an interrogation room getting branded like a cattle. And then you see this character like wake up in her house. Her name is Jane Jane Bell in their like farmstead and their family is being kind of ransacked by this gang called the Stillwaters. And they basically kill 
kill Jane's son and kidnap her husband. And that's kind of like the, you know, this the initiation of the story premise. But with this weird supernatural twist that you just had a dream where you got branded. And now there's like weird shit going on. And like, what, what in the world was that? Um, and I will say that when you talk about the immersive sin thing, like the, one of the first things that I did on accident was like, so I'm getting used to the controls. I'm literally just starting the game. There's like a lantern. I can either like just put it out or pick it up. So I pick it up and then I can like set it down or throw it. I'm like, all right, let me throw it. And then I set my cabin on fire. I'm like, oh, okay. So it had that sort of interaction to it. Um, but the reason why I'm kind of whelmed by it is kind of because of how the game, the story premise is fun i think the title of the game weird west is not doing it any favors but whatever um i think it's got interesting dialogue it's got interesting voice talent i think the art direction it's kind of got that cell shaded comic booky sort of uh vibe to it it's kind of got this twin stick shooter feel uh because most of the weapon systems are like uh rifle shotguns pistols where you aim with a with the right mouse button and, and fire with the left while aiming the thing is, is that it's not much of an RPG, and that doesn't mean it's inherently like, oh, it's not an RPG, therefore I'm not allowed to, to like it. But it it just doesn't have a lot of progression to it or like gameplay systems that I think are interesting. You get like you, these basic quests, like go find who took your husband or who killed your son. Um, it's got you know some some decent itemization where you've got like items and they like gear weapons armors that have different sort of stats and dps and like this what this shotgun does more damage but has a, a shorter range and a shorter fire speed than your revolver which has a higher range but a lower magazine things like that so there has there is some sort of itemization to that but there are there is no like exp there are no like stats attributed to your character there's abilities and perks which are very like they're so boilerplate nowadays to say that a game has abilities or perks almost doesn't mean anything anymore i feel like but the way that you acquire them is so weird so in order to get abilities in this game you get this item called like nymph relics they're items that you just kind of find strewn throughout the world and in order to get perks you find these items called like golden ace of spades because you know it's the wild west gambling it's like a magic deck of cards or whatever so in order to get these like attributes that increase your character's capabilities and strengths it's all based on whether or not you find these items in this world. And if you find a golden ace of spades or a nymph relic, it's like, oh, I've got one of these. I can trade one to get this perk or one to get this ability. Or if I save up two or three, I can get a stronger perk or ability. But as far as I can tell, you can't buy these. Maybe you can later because I'm not that far, but you just find them strewn throughout. Maybe they're awarded through like quests or whatever. But it, it just seems weird to me that everything based on character progression in this game is just based on these two key items it just seems like there's not a lot of interest there's not a lot of, it's almost so straightforward that it's no longer interesting which is like how strong your character is depends on how many golden ace of spades you find that's pretty much and it you literally just find these or do the, you get them the, for like completing like quests of any sort or what i'm guessing that you'll do some quests that allow you to access areas where you can find them but as far as I can tell, as of right now, completing quests only gets you like, I mean, I say only, I don't want to like sell it short. You do get like money and you do get items like weapons and armor, but there's no EXP. There's no, like, for instance, if there's, if there is a, um, if I'm in like a bandits hideout and there's six enemies, the only reason I have, the only incentive I have to really defeat all of them is if I want to loot their goods to try to sell them later, or if I want to just make it easier for myself so I don't have to sneak around. 
Um, so you might just say, well, of course, just just defeat them, take their items and sell them because then you can buy better gear. But then I keep running into this issue where I'm like, come constantly out of inventory space. So oftentimes I'm downing a bunch of enemies and I can't even like pick up what they're dropping because I'm starting out where I can only hold like 50 items total. That includes like junk, that includes healing items, that includes gear. Um, uh, there's supposedly, I haven't unlocked this yet, where you can like unlock... You can like buy a horse that'll give you like saddlebags that can increase your inventory space. So maybe in the long run, like that'll be an inconvenience that I'll appreciate when like, oh yeah, when you're starting out, you can barely hold anything, but then you find a safe house or you find that you get your saddlebags and then you can start holding more and more stuff. So maybe I'm just kind of right now in that inconvenient part of the game where it's like, don't worry, this will get better as your character gets stronger, which is something I just experienced with Elex where, uh, you know, early on, you're not really convenienced or you're not flattered. You're, you know, you're a weak, you're, you're kind of pathetic. better and, 500 hours in. Yeah, or something like that. Supposedly, this game's that, 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 that's not always that a tricky thing. That's always a tricky thing with like RPG progression. And, and I know you said this game is not really an RPG, but you know, you have your character or abilities feel better as you get through the game. But this, sometimes that means at the beginning you kind of feel like a wimp. And yeah, so there are. It's it is an RPG. It just it's not an RPG in the way I thought it would be. It has quests. It has like good itemization that's RPG ish. Uh, it just doesn't have in terms of like the only character progression outside of your items are these perks and abilities which are all based on just trading items you find or acquire to like a, a menu it's it's literally just spend them in like the ui which always seems like it's not what is the word diegetic enough it's like oh i have four golden ace of spades let me go into my perk menu and unlock this ability or, or whatever uh and it's like where where did i get this from how did i learn this you, you just did you you unlocked it out of the menu good job um like i feel like the the when i watched like footage of this game i haven't played it myself but like when i've watched like you know some people play it like i think the gameplay flow of this game is very weird also because it has like these like story segments that then like their battle encounters feel very isolated from like the actual world itself it feels like it's very it's very like divvied up like into set like strict segments yeah so like you have like a few towns that you enter where you do your shop uh, you know your item management, your quest. You turn in your quest, you pick up new quests. But then it says you gotta you gotta follow the tracks of your husband to the Stillwaters encampment. Then you go there, and it's just kind of like an arena. And yeah, it's it's not. It doesn't have that feeling of I'm in a city and a t- and a fight broke out. It feels like there's the city area, and then there's a fight area. Now, it, depending on how you play the game, like there's nothing stopping me from pulling out my sticks of dynamite and just chucking them around in the city. But I'm, I just don't play games that way typically so i think you could do that but yeah the organization is a bit stilted in terms of you're on the world map there's these icons on the world map and i'm 100 okay with that with i don't need it to be a one contiguous like playing field i'm okay with it being like selecting locations from a map but it, it does kind of feel like this area is a combat arena this area is a town this area is where the merchants are at and maybe it'll feel a little bit more organically uh, organized later in the game but right now it's pretty straightforward and pretty kind of bland that's kind of that's kind of my take right now is that it's just a little bit bland uh but it could oh, just be because they, i'm early have, in the game they, they have a roadmap to uh it, uh fix it up improve it i think mm-hmm. they shared a roadmap uh, not too long ago hell yeah i love roadmaps there we go um bust out the roadmap so i mean they're, they're going to continue supporting it i don't know if it'll give you what you want to make it Better, like you know, feel better about it, but they they do have a plan. It just it kind of feels bad. Like it launched in a state, and uh, I don't know. This you're just like you're you're kind of missing out on, you know, what they have in store. And like it's like one of those like man, I wish it was like this at launch instead of what I got. And 
the the quests that I've done so far, and first of all, this game I do understand to some extent that the character I'm playing as now is just one of like five or six. I think the story kind of shuttles you around. I don't know if it's on a linear order. I don't know if you have a choice later or if you ping pong between them. I'm t- I, mean, I try not to. I try to go into games, not maybe not blind, but I don't want to just like I don't want to research the game exactly how it's organized and how it how unveils its story or its gameplay systems just let it carry me through and see how it does but i I do know it's not quite just you play as this character this is the protagonist front to finish it's a bit more different than that so maybe that'll bring a a little interesting perspective to it but i was doing some of the earlier quests and yeah maybe early quests are always going to be straightforward but it was it was kind of silly i'm in this i'm in this gang hideout the still waters encampment or whatever and there's like this this injured guy and it's like do you heal him or do you put him out of his misery like okay this is a little bit binary but whatever i'll heal him i'll use a med kit on him and it's like reputation plus 10 you're a nice guy oh or girl or whatever like hey yeah i'm such a i'm such a you know genuine generous person and then it's like this person is now your friend for life they will they will assist you the next time you're in peril. And I'm like, well, that was kind of easy. But maybe that's just introducing the idea. Maybe other interactions of that system will be a little bit more uh, involved, or a little have a little bit more like nuance to them. It just felt kind of like you healed the guy. Good job. They were they're now indebted to you because I don't know. Uh, it just felt it just felt kind of too straightforward. Didn't have enough going on, and there wasn't enough to like just pick at or dig into. Just like you, you're either a good person or a bad person um, with no real middle ground. Yeah, I was, I was looking into it. So yeah, so like la- last week they they shared like some community event the place. I guess it's like they're treating it as like almost like a live service game where they're adding content uh, post launch, and then like the like the their roadmaps like like a plague event, contact pat, an impossible mode caged ones event, and mod mm. and whatever. That's weird so. to hear because the game so far doesn't seem organized like that. Like, cause there's no like yeah. persistence to it. Like, I'm not sure how you have events, but then again, they kind of made the similar sort of thing with, I remember like two or three years ago, I was playing age of empires two definitive edition and they made that have like seasonal events somehow. Oh, <laughs> they'll yeah. they'll, yeah. they'll, yeah, shoe, they'll right. shoehorn it in some way to get, to keep player engagement up. Uh, I will say that this game is unless something really like, I'm not disliking it. I just kind of feel like it's really, I was thinking maybe like, Oh, it'd be really awesome to visit this game and, be like you know really enthusiastic about it because it's something that people might have flown under the radar but now i'm kind of like eh, you know play stranger of paradise instead that seems more interesting than this or or elden ring like it there's it's it's fine it's just kind of straightforward and bland and doesn't have a lot that just to hold my interest it's not bad it's not like it's it perform i'm playing it on pc and it's performing fine the art is good the gameplay systems make sense it's just kind of bland. It's just that's that's I know I've said that word like six times, but I don't have a more appropriate one. So I guess I'll just kind of leave it at that. But I will report back next week once I've played more. Hopefully I'll, I'll find something and be like, guys, I was wrong. I I, I don't know. I, I judged it too early. It actually gets really good at the 20 hour mark. I don't know. But early impressions are, are overwhelming. It's fine. It's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I'm playing it because it just seems a little bit different from uh, so other stuff that's released so far this year. But it's it's not one that I'm going to be shouting from the rooftops that people need to go back to and make sure they don't miss. The last game that we have uh, earmarked time here to talk about in the uh, in the early section of this podcast is one that Josh has been playing called Samurai Bringer. I, I've heard this title before, but I can't put like I can't paint a picture in my head of what this game is. I've just seen I, the title. I think, it was, I think I first heard of it like in a, like in one of those indie live streams. I can't remember which one. I don't know if it was like a future game show or one that really uh, focused on the Japanese indie titles. 
I'm not sure exactly, but this is a Japanese indie uh, title that just came out on Steam a few days ago. Uh, this is published by Playism, and uh, the developer's name is Alpha Wing. Um, this is not necessarily an RPG; it's more like a roguelite action game. Um, but it's uh, it's really neat. I've been really enjoying it uh, a lot. the The premise is uh, based on Japanese mythology. Uh, Amaterasu uh, casts the the god Susano down to the underworld. Uh, down in the underworld, Susano uh, meets Kushinada. Uh, and then, you know, after getting to know her and, and so forth, Kushinata gets kidnapped by Yamato no Orochi. Um, so it's your, you know, classic Japanese mythology. Like, the, the story premise isn't really what you're there for. But, you know, you have to go uh, rescue Kushinata from Orochi. And then, so it does that thing early in the game where you have, like, your full powers and you go confront Orochi. But it wasn't enough. You get defeated by Orochi. So there goes all your powers. So you so Amaterasu goes down and laughs at you. It's like, look, get stronger. No matter how long it is, get stronger and then go go confront Orochi again. So this is really cool because the way this this game uh, uh, it has a lot of systems and like and its progression system is you know it's it's pretty neat. Where every single one of your like buttons, like I'm using a controller, but every single one of your action buttons is rebindable outside of like moving. So like you have. The like the default the button configuration is really weird because your X like uh, using a Dual Shock for PS PlayStation controller uh, format X is your light attack triangle is your heavy attack uh, square is like your step like your dodge button uh, and circle is your jump um, and then you can like have uh, another like action bind into like R two um, and how how this is depicted is it can, you sort of have like a like a I want to say like an action wheel almost, but it's more like an action bar. And how this is depicted on your screen is like you can assign any action you want on these buttons uh, through combat and action scrolls that you um, collect from defeated enemies. So, for example, your first arm with a sword, and then you know the X would be the the one that you're probably comfortable with for your light attack, as that's what you were using in the tutorial of the game. So. As you're starting to defeat like early enemies, they'll start ca- dropping combat scrolls. These could be like slash down, slash up, slice, thrust, and then uh, you can st- you can b- bind these on your X button and be like, "All right, I want my the first action of when I press X once is to slice, and then uh, bind the second button in my combo to slash up. So when you press X two times, you'll do a slice and a, a, a slash up, but you can also combine these on the same button. So let's say I wanted to have, uh, I want to do a slice and then slash up on the same button. Like you can combine them on the same action, not two separate actions on that X button. So you do like a combination maneuver where you're, the motion you're, you're doing is you're slicing up diagonally, but it's slashing up at the same time as you're slicing. So uh, th- that's already kind of okay. That's kind of weird, but, uh, but sure. So I now, know, that premise seems interesting to me. The, the, yeah, the uh, I don't know, just kind of tailoring it to your gameplay style and your exactly your tastes. And, and then now, now to add a little twist, to this now you can uh, early on as well. You learn that you can add like a modifier to it. So you'll start uh, on top of like the action scrolls that you get, like combat scrolls to do like the combat actions. You also get uh, scrolls that uh, modify the attack. Uh, the, where you can have like different ones, like say one that uh, 
has it so you apply a flame property to that attack, to that slash or slice up attack. You add the flame property now that your sword, your sword is on fire while you're doing it. And then you can add like another modifier to it, like a, a samidar, dare, where even once you do it, you're, you, once you do sli the slice up with the fire, you'll do it multiple times with that samidare um, modifier. And so. Fantasian taught me that. Exactly. Um, so there's like this, you do this like anything you, you get on like the, with all the weapons that you pick up, like all the bladed weapons, all the melee weapons, like you have axes, you have um, axes, spears, and then like a, like a double-sided blade, like you have like a variety of multiple weapons. Uh, and then you can like start mixing and matching, uh, you know, actions throughout your action bar um, as you're picking up, you know, weapons and combat scrolls and modifier scrolls. So to, to really tailor to your own style and then like, you, you know, it, it can get crazy as you're, as you're starting to mix and match these things. So now on, to, on, on top of that, um, obviously you need to have some, some sort of limit because if you just kept on stacking things, you'd just be like, you, you, there has to be a cost to it. So the cost to stacking these modifiers uh, on top of like this action is like a, a skill point cost or SP cost. So everything you do aside of like just basic movement, whether it's like a, a dodge or a jump or an attack, everything costs like a skill point to do or a certain amount of skill points. So obviously early on, you'll be pretty restricted uh, in terms of like your total amount of SP and like and the total amount of SP a move can have. Um, so uh, throughout the game, as you're progressing, you're unlocking like achievements of like kill like you know X amount of soldiers or like you know kill amount of X mini bosses and uh, you know all, all your your standard assortment of like achievements that you'd find in these action games. Um, so as you're reaching these milestones, you go over to these Jizo statues, and then you're uh, if you reach these achievements, you're award, you're awarded Magatama. Where and these magatama will power up your maximum amount of uh, skill points and the maximum amount of like an action itself can have uh, as a skill point cost. So like early on, let's say like your X button, each each X action will only have like a standard cost like seven skill points. So you can you can start you can like stack on slice, thrust, poison, flame, etc. But it cannot go over uh, seven, and then of course, as you power it up and you get uh, more skill, like uh, a higher skill point uh, cap to that action, you can stack on more. So, like the more slash actions you you uh, like slash scrolls you uh, put on top of that, it'll power up the slash action. So that's how you actually level up your attack is by like stacking on combat scrolls and now that attack in itself is now getting further powered up and then uh, of course as you're going through the achievements you're getting higher and higher thresholds on not only the total amount of actions you can do but the total amount of uh, action costs you have on your uh, abilities so it's one of those things that's like it sounds so complicated to like lay out and then when you see it it's like oh that's simple you know that's easy to understand so um I guess uh, my main question, and the only thing that I don't think I followed, is I understand mm -hmm. kind of like that you have this cap for any for any given action about how far you can modify it, but like mm -hmm. what determines what modifications you can put on it? 
Is that the scrolls? Yeah, uh, it's all oh. the scrolls that you pick up. So it, it, it's all it's all you can freely swap them in and out. There's no like permanent decision that you made for them. So like any like you're stacking multiple scrolls on top of an action. So like if you just have like a like a, a thrust scroll for example, like you'll put a thrust scroll to like do the action. But if you want to power up like the the attack power of that thrust in the action, you're stacking on multiple thrust scrolls on top of that one. So you're like furthering the uh, attack damage you're doing in that action. And then uh, it's the same thing for like basic movement. So say you have like three jump scrolls, you can all stack them on like different parts of like your circle button, and then you have a triple jump, easy. Um, well, I kind of like that. That's fun. Yeah, and, and it's the same thing for like uh, like your step dodge. Like you can you can stack three different steps on that, but that's inefficient. To just stack three steps on top of each other in the same action, and then that means you'll step further you'll in, st- in that one action instead of three mini steps that you're um, expending multiple SP to do. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of like uh, considerations like that. And, and, the, and the cool thing about this game also is the way it handles loot. Like Loot doesn't necessarily have stats assigned to them. Uh, all the loot is, can be, is dual purpose. You can either equip it as like armor but that's only cosmetic or you can equip them as a weapon because each piece of loot has like a weapon like attached to it but like they don't only come into effect if you equip that loot on a weapon slot so you don't really have to like worry about like the quality of loot that you get uh let's say so but but some loot will have like passives uh, attached to it like enhanced hp or like vigor or enhanced movement speed or higher jump and like that's about as important as it gets, and you can go to a blacksmith and like transfer over that passive over to like another sort of uh, or piece of loot that you have because you like the cosmetic on it. So you can like so loot is really more so like how you look and the weapon more so than like what sort of like passive it, is, it has because you can just like exchange that at the blacksmith a blacksmith for like a a certain amount of money. So and then uh, as you're going through the game, um, you're fighting off like. These famous warring states in Goku period, like samurai, like Yukimura Sanada, Akechi Mitsuhide, Oda Nobunaga, and um, as you as you defeat them, you'll actually unlock like their sort of like you unlock them as playable characters, let's say. But it's more so that like every time you die, you'll start with like nothing except all the combat scrolls and all the Jizo statue upgrades that you got, but all the equipment that you got will be lost in that run, but you'll still have like you know, uh, persistive like upgrades uh, through that through the combat scrolls that you get. But um, before you venture off into like your next like try and attempt at it, yeah, all the samurai like as you're defeating like samurai, you can like equip like their armor presets on you to get you like what you want from the get go. So you're not absolutely starting out from nothing. So for example, early on. Like in the tutorial, you defeat Yukimura Sanada. And then so every time I die now, I can choose to like just either go off like uh, as my normal normal state with like nothing but my sword and the combat scrolls that I got. Or I can like equip Yukimura's armor and his and his weapons and his like like skill set when like I fought him. So like you're you're starting off as like a Yukimura Sanada preset, so at least you have some offensive abilities with you from the get-go so you're not starting out from completely nothing and that's how it is for you know as you're taking down more and more like uh samurai and then 
um, just lastly, how the progression works in in the game. Um, uh, stages, you know, are like your typical small map, but then uh, to exit a stage, you have to either go through a blue portal or a purple portal. Uh, purple portal are the ones that like teleport you to a boss stage that like progresses the game because you have to get through a certain amount of bosses before you, uh, assumedly, you know, go against face off against Orochi again. So I only got down like three bosses so far in this current run that I'm in, but like purple portals, portals are like vertical progression and blue portals are like horizontal progression, meaning that like if you don't feel like you're powerful enough yet to take on like the next boss, you can go through a blue portal and continue to, uh, you know, get more combat scrolls, get more equipment, um, and then the, like go through these like shrine puzzle stages and you'll get Magatama that way as well. It's a cute little game and it's only 10 bucks and for that value, I'd say uh, even give it a try. Like even if you treat it like as a two-hour demo, if the if this what I'm saying intrigues you in any way, it's a it's a really really neat little game that uh, caught me as a by surprise. I just picked it up on a whim because I saw it. I remembered this game from a live stream. And I was like, oh yeah, I wanted to check that game out, and sure enough, I'm I'm really into it right now. So it looks like it is on Steam, Switch, and PS4. So, okay, cool. Uh, I assume you're playing it on Steam. Yeah, I'm playing it on Steam. But you know, if you want to play it on the other platforms, uh, go for it. It's it's a really really cool game. No, it's uh, it only released on the 21st. So as we record this, just a couple of days ago. So cool that you were able to spot this and pick. Sometimes picking up on a whim is where we find those hidden gems. All right, that covers us for the games talk section in terms of what we've been playing. So really cool to have the full cast here to talk about the variety of things uh, that we've been digging into for the last week. We don't have like a major blockbuster headline on the news front this week like we did last week about the Kingdom Hearts 4 uh, announcement and reveal. But we did have a headline for this week that we're going to open up with, which is just unusual and unorthodox. And I'm not sure I've ever seen something quite like this. And that is, is we're going to start out with a release date announcement for Xenoblade Chronicles 3. This is interesting because Xenoblade Chronicles 3 had already been announced that it would be launching this year in September. However, in the last week, Nintendo and Monolith Soft have revealed that Xeno, sorry, I almost said Xenosaga, Xenoblade Chronicles 3 will release on July 29th. So the release date is not that far away and has moved up a couple of months from its originally slated time. This is quite something because uh, I know that people were looking forward to this and September seemed like a good time for it. Uh, and I think a couple of people are wondering whether they'd play this or Kuro 2 in Japanese. Uh, but now this one's going to be releasing. Let's, yeah? let's be honest. That's... <laughs> The people worried about that, you could probably name on one hand, and two of them are in this podcast. There you go. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so Xenoblade Chronicles 3 is a few months away now. Not that far. Like, this game wasn't announced that long ago. It's just, it's, I don't it's, it's kind of weird that we've seen this, that this, I don't know if I've ever, I can't recall a time in my head where a, a release window got pushed forward. Yeah, and so it happens like sometimes, this. but usually not this severe. Mm -hmm. uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla was moved up one week, yeah. but you know, it, it, not like two months. Yeah, one the example, a better example would be like Trails from Zero because Trails from Zero's English release would have been at like around somewhat the same time as Xeno Three. It'd be closer to that time frame. And two, I don't know if there's like a term for like a re of like a reverse delay of something getting pushed up. 
I don't know if there's necessarily a term for that, but it it is a it it was a weird one until Nintendo announced like a few days later that Splatoon three was coming out early September. It's like okay, this is why they did it. Yeah, it's funny because I I know for like a couple of days before we knew like what was up with Splatoon three, people were like, hmm, I was expecting July for Splatoon. I wonder if their dates got swapped, and now it's like there's no like hard data to say that, but it seems like a relatively safe assumption yeah the nintendo likes their one big flagship title a month uh schedule so that, that's most assuredly why but you know what i i'm okay with this I, but i'm only okay with this as long as like the game feels relatively complete i don't want no nonsense of when september rolls around and xenoblade 3 gets some big quality of life update patch around september that'll piss me off i i'm not okay with well I'm happy it's coming before Kuro 2, and there's plenty of time for me to play it before I have to worry about playing Kuro 2. But this comes out a week after Live Alive, mm-hmm. and the same day as another game that we're going to be talking about in a little bit that's also an RPG. It's, it's, also, like, um, it's also kind of, like, I think this is maybe, I don't know if concerning is the right word, but maybe on the track that Josh was getting at, where, like, Xenoblade Chronicles 2... It got a lot of quality life patches after it released. It did, in terms yeah. Of just like performance, how the map worked, how some of the you know menus and systems worked, and then of course it got like DLC later, like Torna. But it's like hopefully Xenoblade Chronicles Three is in a better state at launch than Xenoblade Chronicles Two was, especially if they're going to be moving it up. Like it, I guess we're assuming that it's ready. Yeah. Well, I, I remember in that time period, it was kind of interesting. It's like uh, on this date a few months after Xenoblade Chronicles 2 released, this is what comes for free, and this is what you have to pay for, because it was like some that stuff with the like crossover stuff or whatever. And it was kind of an interesting window of time for the game that you, I know Adam had to kind of keep track of like what was included that you just as the quality of life post-launch support, and what was like pay for this to get this convenience added to the game for, for a monetary cost. So maybe this means that we're going to see that again for Chronicles 3? Hard I to hope say. Not, dude. I, I really hope not. I I, uh, I I don't like having the track of like, oh man, what's the paid free updates and what's like the thing like I I, I was mentioning it, uh, like last week the Super Robot War stuff, but like like uh, for us to have like have to like make that divide and like keep men- like a mental note of like okay, what's free and what's not, what's the quality of life that's being paid for, what's not, like that's fucking stupid. And and Adam uh, like really nailed the uh, nailed it for like my concerns of like. Xenoblade 2 had considerable quality of life, and I don't want... Like, if that quality of life is coming, it better not be coming in September, you know? Um, because if that, that that's one of those things, like, well, it should have just launched in September then, if it was going to mm-hmm. have this uh, kind of stuff. But other than that, you know, the, we got a new trailer with it for it. They showed off a special collector's edition with an art book. Um, it's, it's, you know, and we got, and most importantly, we got a first look at the game's combat system in action and as you can expect that combat UI system is, is, is it's a monolith soft classic at this point of like just fucking filling the screen with a whole bunch of i'm not gonna say nonsense i'm sure every part of that ui is um it'll make sense as we play it but it is it is not like a great first impression for people who like aren't used to these sorts of games. One thing I remember from both Xenoblade One, actually pretty much every Xenoblade title, is that like uh, 
when you're playing the game, not only is the UI like you you learn how to read it in terms of like what every what the the utility of every single gauge and meter on there, but also like the other the characters are shouting all the time, which yeah. in a vacuum that just sounds it's just really funny to poke fun of like characters yelling all the time. Uh, but like when you actually like really get deep into the systems, like when characters yell and what they yell also can like be like clues about like what you need to do in terms of like your rotations and whatnot. <laughs> well, we're, we're like, yeah. But it, like we're mega fucked this time around because like, it seems like six or all seven characters are all on the screen at once out in the battlefield. And like, it's like, what are these? It's like, Oh my God, why did you do this? <laughs> well, I, I, already crowded. <laughs> so I pulled up an article on RPG site that was published in 2017 for about the Xenoblade Chronicles two combat guide. And like that game is oh. similarly, like you look at the UI of that game. I, I posted one here in the podcast chat and it's just like, yeah, I understand all of this. This all makes perfect sense. Uh, some of it's a little bit rusty because it's been a while since I played it. So like, I look at this UI and I'm like, God, this is a mess, but I, I've, I, I know about by the time I get to the end of the Xenoblade Chronicles 3, like, yeah, I understand this like the back of my hand. But now with the added complication that you've got seven party members that you're playing with at once, and that also brings up, I don't know if concern is too strong a word, but like Xenoblade Chronicles 2 didn't perform that great in several yeah. areas. And now, now I'm imagining like just having seven people doing their flashy attacks all at once and like on a Switch exclusive. And like, it's oh, all okay. yelling at once, you know. <laughs> I, I thought it was kind of funny. So, th- uh, there was this little thing about the trailer and its and its subtitles. Uh, it's not really a spoiler, but the sub the if you open the subtitles for the trailer, it can kind of clue clue you in on who's speaking. Um, but I, I, one thing I also kind of found funny was like every time it was like showing a battle scene, it just said like in parentheses characters yelling. And yep. I just thought that was funny. Just like characters <laughs> yelling. That's what they're doing. Yep, characters yeah. yelling. But the main in terms of the battle system. So like in Xenoblade Chronicles two, you had. You, you kind of had six characters in battle, but you had only three of them doing anything at any time, right? Because the other one was like just like sitting in the back, kind of tethered, right? Remember? Yeah, it was like but, a driver uh, and a blade. Type yeah, dynamic. But now the main gimmick, the new gimmick, I don't think we've talked about this yet, is that mm-hmm. your each characters are paired again. Um, so you have like Noah and the cat girl, who I forget Neo. her name. Yeah, and blah blah blah, and now they can like transform and combine into an Ouroboros and it's like a sort of like a fusion mech sort of thing. It looks like a generic do. blade from Xenoblade 2. <laughs> I'm not going to even lie. It, it, looks does. Like a, it looks like a fancier generic blade from Xenoblade 2. <laughs> um, which is, you know, sure, I guess that that's certainly a choice, but yeah, it, it's one of those weird things like the, at, at some like screenshots that we got, like there, it has like the characters like form like a tag team, like, action together or state at first so like you'll see like their portraits like combine together before they like initiate this Ouroboros state and like as the trailer implies it's like it's like they're literally like inside one another which is you know sure why not so I have to imagine talking about like gameplay it probably will come down to knowing when and how to like access and activate and use these Ouroboros states as efficiently as possible Kind of like the gimmick in the last game were those like elemental orbs, and for bosses you'd want to like chain up all eight of them to get like, yeah, the best I, combos. I, I, hope, I hope the so. oral I hope the state isn't like the be all end all like um uh, like end goal for combat. Um, I, I hope they're like more like as a used as a utility for like situational purposes rather than like oh I always want to be an oral 
for yeah. too. Now, now this is getting a little bit more into the weeds a bit, but um, I know Xenoblade Chronicles Two, its battle system kind of has like uh, a bit of a ramp up. So, yeah. in my opinion, it works really well for bosses, but it kind of dragged a little bit on like the regular encounters because you kind of have to fill up those meters with your regular attacks to get going, and there was like a, a ramp up period, right? Um, I'm kind of hoping three is maybe a little bit more even uh, in terms of you know not totally relying on like this ultimate orb chaining attacks that you could do in two. Yeah, because because that, one that's had like the... The, that's getting a little bit into the weeds, but yeah, because one had the like break topple days, but then two had the do your three tiered element to make an orb stack up all the orbs. So you had to do this three tiered thing several times. And then two, you had a bunch of orbs and you did the burst thing, whatever you called it to break the orbs. So they like two from my memory, uh, just, it was slower than one in terms of its ramp. No, they meant like you got flashier for the boss fights. And then like when you got an eight orb chain or whatever, it felt really kind of, you know, badass. but I agree with you that for like individual battles, it'd be, it would just felt like it took too long. And I wasn't, it, I was always not eager to disengage with random enemies. A lot of the time. Yeah, actually, I actually felt Torna improved on that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, me too. The way with like you, you, if you don't remember, I don't, I don't remember like the specifics, but you like jump back and forth between like blade and driver a little bit more frequently. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so reliant on orbs. Anyways, we'll see what they do. Yeah, I mean, from the footage that we got, it, it doesn't seem to. It seems to like be somewhat combining elements of the of the previous two while doing its own thing. Like its UI is very Z, like Xenoblade Two, but the flow of combat looks like Xenoblade One. It looks like your movement isn't so hampered. Uh, like in Xenoblade Two, it looks like positionals matter as much as Xenoblade 1. Like, it still mattered a little bit in Xenoblade 2, but not as much. I thought the funniest that. thing about Xenoblade 2, and everybody who's probably done this, if you got anywhere close to the game, was, like, if you're playing as Rex, to get his attacks off faster, you would have him do his attack, and then you just, like, flick Wiggle. the stick a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so, because his animation to doing his attack would be quicker rather than if you just waited. Yeah, so, so you, you'd, it's yeah, like, but- it kind of funny how everyone just kind of, you know, it's not like it's hard to figure out. We just like attack, wiggle, attack, wiggle, because he, yeah. he moves faster. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny. It's like you could you could tell they tried to incentivize you to keep in a in a an auto attack chain in Xenoblade 2 because the final hit in the combo would build more bar. But the thing is, is that there's more recovery frames after the hit connects. So that's the whole reason that just wiggling the stick even worked in the first place and it's like i i'm convinced that was originally a bug but so many people used it that they just were like eh fuck it leave it in yeah the interesting thing about like the xenoblade 3 battle footage is like you're you're combining arts uh in, in this game so there's like there's there's two aspects like uh, of like their battle um ui like there's like a you have a certain amount of arts at the left side and a certain amount of arts at the right side and then you can actually like to see the ui transform as you like combine arts from each of of those uh like arts selections at both sides of the screen so i'm really interested to see like how versatile that is and like what sorts of combinations you can make like obviously this is like not explained outright yet um there's just sort of like kind of skimming combat footage and be like all right i can see kind of see what you're doing there i just i'm just really worried that like one switch performance who that the battle voices are going to drive me insane now that there's like so many of them on a field once. Just turn them to Japanese and don't understand what they're saying. The best part. You can still understand what they're saying. It's all. It, it doesn't matter if it's English or Japanese. They're, they're both nonsense either way in the middle of combat. <laughs> well, I know when, like I said this earlier, but like when I played Definitive Edition of Xenoblade 1, like you would wait for Ryan or whoever to say a certain shout 
and you knew they were about to do a certain attack because of a certain shout. And then you'd like, as soon as it went off, you would be able to, you'd be ready to do your, your follow-up, like whether it's break top old days or whatever. So like, I actually find that recognizing those shouts, whichever language you're using is like, actually like there's utility there. And I thought that's kind of funny. Just like waiting for a certain shout. as like a clue. Fighting games. Like if I was playing blaze blue, if I was using Carl, every time Carl say something, I kind of know what he's doing. And that's the good thing about playing in Japanese voice. People don't know what you're doing, but you're playing in English voice. People know what you're doing because they're going to understand what you said. He's that sister. So you know that the sister, uh, I was, yeah, was going to say, I'm, I'm imagining a world now where you have like a toggle in the menu where it's like essential information only. I don't want to hear about it's <laughs> Ryan time. I only want to hear when you're doing your topple attack. Or I, I would not turn off Ryan time. Hell no. Absolutely not. But yeah, I mean, uh, other than that, the, the trailer is sort of as usual, like, hey, there's some new characters that they introduced uh, in it. You have this uh, like kind of white haired girl or blue, light blue haired girl with like a glowing red eye. Um, you have this guy who has like like he has a lance and like his hair is on fire with a shoulder pad spewing fire and i guess he's in control of mech i don't know it's all it's crazy uh, yeah i was watching the trailer and they have like these other couple of characters that aren't party members like kind of shouting and doing things i'm like i'm not sure if they're a villain or or just some important <laughs> yeah. character i have no and idea actually, what's going on i felt bad that we didn't talk about like the story content of the trailer but to me it's just hard to latch onto it because it's all out of context it's all like I yeah i have i have no i watched the trailer and i have no idea what's going on like obviously i know if like you take your time with it and like you can you frame by frame it just, yeah but it's just like i'd rather just experience the game i'm gonna play the fucking game anyway right. so. <laughs> like i'm not gonna like try to like puzzle together these out of context right. shouts and whatnot and like clips here and there uh, uh the game looks nice so it's i mean i I don't know. I like the art, the unified art style now that they've got the Xenoblade 1 Definitive Edition 2 and 3. So the art style, I think, is, is nice. Uh, that might be independent of how the game performs in battle on the Switch. We'll see. But I, I like what I see, but I'm with Adam where it's like I'm not going to try to parse wh- which of these events is happening in what order, what's the context of each of them, because it's just too too trailer divvied up for me to really be interested I think I think the the one screenshot that the, that they released that just cracked me up was is there's this one screenshot where you have like the main character's like portrait like show up at the other side of the screen that's like more revealed that says like tactical bonus and it's just really funny that's like did you really need to have like this dude like show up and take off take that much of the fucking screen at the right corner <laughs> it's just like what is going on dude <laughs> I'm looking. Uh, there's so many numbers on the screen. These these combat screenshots are a mess. I mean, I already, yeah. already talked about that, but Jesus Christ. Yeah, and it's like a completion bonus. Attacks during chain attack gain 70% chance to bypass damage. Like, Man, oh, it, this just reminds me of those like parody UI screenshots that people made on yeah. like uh like in the like the early 2010s. It's like, man. It's like they really just went they, they knew. They knew like, my, my my favorite, my favorite uh uh my favorite tweet I saw about the uh, battle UI is, so what's your favorite class? Uh, DPS tank woman. <laughs> it's because oh, the uh, icon looks like uh, the, the female gender icon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's uh, kind of, I, I actually didn't catch that the uh, the two Nopons, like uh, share a character slot. That's fun. Yeah. Riku and Manana. But yeah, I'm excited for this. I can uh, Josh, can you wait? Um, can you wait for them to uh, make a joke about how they want to eat manana like a banana? <laughs> oh no, they're gonna do that, aren't they? 
Yeah. Will no. Will the no pawns go meh, meh, meh in this game? Probably because when playing the definitive edition, it's sort of jarring in a way where you play Xenoblade, the original. They don't really say meh like a lot. Like I think Riki might say it once, and then you like go straight into the uh, future connected bonus thing. And then, like all of a sudden, the nope on there are saying meh, meh, a lot. Like, <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 in the English job, I don't. I forget what they do in Japanese. They will probably go meh, meh, meh. All right, so it won't be too long until we're playing this game. Just a few months away, but July is a good time uh, for it. I'm excited. I, I feel bad. I feel bad for all the people that's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna get my replays or like gonna complete Xenoblade Two done by September. I still have time. And then Nintendo's like, guess what? <laughs> I've actually seen a fair number of people saying like. Um, they're interested in this game and they haven't played any of the other ones. Like, can I play this one? And it's like, may, probably, but awesome. there are some characters that are carryovers. So, like, you don't well, really kinda, need to play one before two. Like, there is well, that then, big link there, but it's not like it, it. It's I think it's standalone enough. But it's like no. We'll but see. and when they announced this, didn't the original press release say that like it was deliberately linking them together? It was weird. I mean, you don't here. You don't even need to. Here's the wording. The wording is explore a new world that will connect the futures of both Xenoblade Chronicles and Xenoblade Chronicles Two. You don't even need to see that though, because like, just look at the box art. It's like literally like the two Xenoblade box art put together. It's like it's completely overt. It's kind of funny. I mean, it, it depends for people, right? Like, if you if you want to just go into it, and you'll probably find it like a standalone story with like you won't under really understand like some of the characters. But if you really don't want to push yourself through really long, too long JRPGs to just understand everything here, like just start with this one. Who cares? You know, you just want to like get like none of these like main crew, uh, crew like main party members are from like the first two games, right? So, well, you say you say well, they say that one and two are connected, but. Some of the like, gameplay footage they showed on the Japanese account. I'm not sure if it was uh, on the North American account yet. Uh, I- I'm just going to post the, t- the quote tweet I did because it's like I looked at it. It's like, hmm, hmm, like uh, that, that that area looks kind of kind of familiar in a way. Hmm. I know, but but I mean, like, who cares for people who don't like who, for people who even have to ask? Oh man, to have to go through Xenoblade one and two, three, four, three. It's like if you if you if you really if you already sound like if, our, if that already sounds like a task that you don't want to do, don't fucking do it. Just just go into this one fresh, and who cares? You it's know? a little right, bit different so, than like Xeno Saga, where three and literally takes place like just right after two, and two takes place right after one. So it's like uh, not quite like that. I, we have I, to decide, like, guys. We we have to put it on the record. So. Uh, independent of Xenoblade 3, if someone wanted to get into the series, would you suggest that they play 1 or 2? Which game do you like one. better? I was, my vote would be for 1. I, there's parts of each that I like more than the other. I'd probably just say start with 1, though. I, I, I'd say I guess, whichever but I would say whichever 1 seems more appealing to you, like from the get-go, like when you, when you first like look at Battle for it, or like just footage of them in general, whatever appeals to you, because because both of them have some really good points. Both of them have some really, really fucking bad points. So it's like, I'm not going to recommend one over the other. I'm going to say, hey, go look at footage for both. And uh, whichever one uh, looks good to you, go with that one. And who cares? I guess I realize now that my question was kind of not carefully worded. Because I said, which one do you recommend versus which one you like better? Which might not be the same answer. Because you might just I say, have- I suggest. 
suggest but, one because I think you should play them all or, or whatever in order. Because like the play it because both both of them are so fucking long that like you'll never you you won't you won't want to play the other one immediately. Hell no. Mm-hmm. So just uh, just play that one and then whenever you feel like playing up the the other Xenoblade games, just get to it then. But the, don't don't like try to make it like a gauntlet. And both games for me, like very rarely do I get emotionally invested in uh, a lot of RPG stories. I think they're too rote, too too unoriginal. But for both Xenoblade One and Two, there are parts of that game that actually like tug uh, tug up my heartstrings, made me feel emotional. Like I almost feel silly saying that, but both these games I really enjoy very several aspects of their stories. So I'm excited for that for Xenoblade Chronicles Three. Well, like whenever I whenever I tell people like like. Uh, when they when they play Xenoblade One, I always have to give you the caveat like whenever you don't want to do like the side quests anymore, don't fucking do the side quests because they are exhausting. And trying to hundred percent that game will drain your soul. I tried to do the side quests in two, and I was exhausted. I just wanted to get uh, yeah, like like but yeah, like both one and two, but one especially is like it's really heavy on like the side quest bloat. Two is a yeah, little bit better. They tried it. to help with the definitive edition with like having them mark. And so, like, in the Definitive Edition, you could, um, like, what I would recommend is just kind of, if you are running along a field and there's, like, a side quest marker on the way, you could do it. But otherwise, just trying to, like, go down, like, a checklist is just, it's it's extremely, extremely tedious. I think there's, like, 400 quests in that game. Yeah, it's not worth it. And I remember using all the different blades in two so I could get their side quest so you can unlock, like, what, the tiers of their ability maps or whatever you call them. And uh, I don't think it was worth it. I was being completionist at the time, and some of the stories I remember liking, but a lot of them were just kind of like... You know what pisses know. me off now? Like my, my friend is going through that game for the first time with all the quality of life stuff, and again, apparently they just shit out items that like let you unlock those upper tiers for free. Now. And, and apparently they've changed how Ursula's questing works. That was such a slog I've, before. You had to keep sending her on whatever you call those dispatch things where they show back up, and I don't know. I think I think she's she's still a slug. I I I think it might have been lessened, but it, it's still you still have to send her out yeah. the dispatches. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. I I only ever played Xenoblade Two at launch. Maybe I'd feel better about it if I had played it later with all the uh, enhancements. And exactly, whatnot. and th- that's why I hope that Xenoblade Three doesn't suffer a similar fate. Because yeah, same thing happened to me, James. I was like playing it. And I all am... of a sudden, it's these quality of life changes. And I'm like. No. I am less worried about Xenoblade 3 because Xenoblade 2 was a smaller development team. Uh, it was like, what, three years after Zen- Xenoblade Cross? A little bit more, a little bit less, something around that. And then it was like rushed in time for like the first year of the Switch's life. Meanwhile, it's been almost five years since uh, Xenoblade uh, 2. And obviously, Definitive Edition wasn't a full team. It was. It was a port. Like there was like obviously enhancements, but it clearly wasn't the bulk of their work. I don't know. I mean, I well, can then, understand. Well, then you got to bring in how much is Monolith helping on Zelda and things like that. Yeah, but the point is, is it's been way longer between Xenoblade two and three than the gap between Xenoblade Cross, which was arguably still the biggest game that Monolith Soft has ever made. I don't know. I'm just not as worried as other people are. I feel like cross is good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if it was a smaller gap between two and three, I would be more worried about the state of the game at launch, but it's been almost five years and it's like one or two months. I don't think is going to make that, 
big well, seen the Chronicles 2 was five years ago. Jesus. I don't know. Did you, you saw how Kuro got quality of light enhancements like a month after? Josh, Josh, <laughs> Josh, that, that game came out a year after Hajimari. It doesn't, it's not the same circumstance. <laughs> <Not> the same. <laughs> same thing to me. <laughs> Uh, we will talk about that when we get closer to release. I'm sure we're going to be into the heavy marketing cycle now. I'm guessing that'll come up a few more times on the podcast before it's July release date. And we're excited for that one. And it sounds like a fair number of us here will be playing it. So that'll be an interesting discussion once we have that later in the summer. We have a pair of MMO news articles here that I think are interesting headlines, though I don't know to what extent we will be able to talk about them because I don't know to what extent the cast here has experience with either of these games. Uh, I'm going to start with a simpler one first, I think, and that is that the MMORPG Terra will be shutting down on June 30th. This, the, all the PC servers, and I believe this has been followed up that all of the console servers as well, because the, the publishing rights between them are kind of disparate, will be shutting down. So... Terra is kind of a game that I felt like has kind of been like one of those under the radar games that has just kind of had its loyal fan base persisting since its release back in like 2011. But unfortunately, it just sounds like it's no longer viable to keep online and will be shutting down in, in just a couple months. Had a long run. <laughs> Terra is one of those still games. It's like, oh, right. That's still going until now. I, I'm not, and, I've actually known, I've actually had like a few good friends that like who really stuck with Terra throughout its life so i can't imagine how they feel i definitely played this. tarot during launch and i enjoyed everything about it but there was something about the game that just kind of ruined it over time as it goes it had a really poor end game once you finish the story you don't know what to do for the end game and then uh the quest was really repetitive and then it got free to play and it just it just kind of killed itself from there well, I mean, even then, like I, I think it's commendable that it, it was able to last this long. I mean, yeah, surprisingly, you know, crazy, it's crazy. But I, I do think it does have its charm. It has one like the best MMO combat for its time, and I think still stands out today. And I, I remember when this game was first coming out. Uh, a friend at the time was sharing me some combat footage about a lot of the verticality that it had. Like it showed a character like jumping off a cliff and falling down like several. I don't know, feet, meters, whatever. And it just at the time in 2011, this was pretty, you know, back in the era of like Guild Wars 1 and it's, and it's like, I don't know, Twilight Years and WoW and I think Final Fantasy 14, when did that release? 2012? Like a, a lot of, a lot of MMOs kind of had this distinct expectation for having like kind of flatter environments to, to incorporate having multiple characters and had like very deliberate movement and tab targeting and then Terra was this more action focused vertically vertically designed maps and I never played it but I remember seeing it like wow this is what MMOs can do these days and now maybe it's not so impressive but at the time I thought it was just an interesting take on the genre uh, so it's always kind of sad when you think like you know there's uh, a tight knit community here behind this game that now has to like look forward to whatever kind of celebration they'll have at the end uh, before the servers go offline. The other major uh, MMO news for this week is kind of the opposite. It's the quintessential MMO of the day, which is World of Warcraft, has announced its new expansion, Dragonflight. So World of Warcraft, I've never played it. I don't know if Josh or James have. Nope. Like I, very, I, very early in its life. Very early I, in its life. Yeah, I have never played WoW. Yeah. I did a I did a one month 
trial with a wow very early on that a friend um, gave up in high school. I think I played it for just like a brief five minutes and I said, no, this sucks. I'd rather play I, Ion. I, I, t- I, t- I talked to people who <laughs> who have been in and out of like their WoW love. They've mostly fallen off of it now. But they had, uh, but most of those people were in it for PvP. So <laughs> I don't know. My friend still play it, and he said it was a sunk cost policy. I collected everything. I don't want to lose all this. But it's <laughs> basically his take. So I've never played WoW, and there's, I have two interesting comments here that I want to make as just an outsider. First of all, this talks about increasing the level cap to seventy, and I just like wasn't the level cap like a hundred? Oh yeah, they did the level squish like back uh, uh, expansion or two ago. So I was thinking it's just kind of interesting that they squished the levels, and now they're just going back to the every expansion is a new 10, 10 levels higher cap. Just kind of found that kind of interesting on its face. Another thing that I found. I only kind of realized because of that I play Guild Wars 2. And then on the Guild Wars 2 Reddit, all of a sudden, I started seeing people showing a bunch of comparison videos between the mount systems in the two game. I'm like, wait, what is this? Like, I'll, I'll be I'll, I'll be honest. Guild Wars 2 has no... Or sorry, WoW has nothing to fear from Guild Wars 2. We know, we know where we stand. But apparently, as part of the Dragonflight expansion, they're introducing this rideable mount that basically looks like it i'm not going to say it borrows animation but it's heavily inspired from guild wars 2 griffin and uh skyscale which is basically a port uh, a small dragon mount and this wasn't just people just trying to see things and say like oh they're copying us or whatever but like i mean, when i saw a, fun, a couple of fun screen caps from the uh, announcement stream showing that you know the mmo community a lot of people have jumped from game to game and people immediately called like oh i recognize that those are the mounts from guild wars 2 and i'm not in any place to really say like you know it's, they shouldn't do this or they should do this but it's just kind of fun to see like the inspiration cross the um cross the gap there between the two games and i do know a lot of developers from arena net do now work at blizzard presumably on wow I just thought that was just kind of an interesting comment because I know that's been kind of a point of weird drama over the last week about inspiration versus imitation and things like that. I kind of well, wish like you could the, talk. I mean, like, like from the the bullet points of this expansion is, hey, there's obviously going to be new regions for new zones, making shores, on around plains, uh, Azure Span, and the temples of Thalgesis, and then they're introducing the first ever race class combo, the Drak Theater Evoker. They'll design both humanoid and dra- draconic forms. And you can soar through the fly, uh, skies of dragon riding, and they're revamping the talent system. This will make sense to someone out there, not me. Yeah, I kind of wish we could talk about this in depth, but you're, you're like, none of us here are just, are just up to date on this. But while wow, still chugging along, uh, I've seen a lot of uh, excitement for Dragonflight. And uh, if the mount system ends up borrowing from Guild Wars 2, which got pretty high praise for its mounts, I think that's, you know, a good sign. And maybe they'll, they'll just one-up it and to make it even better. Who knows? It's hard It's hard not to see, like, the WoW cycle again, right? Because there's, like, it's, like, not too long ago, you know, several months ago, people were like, WoW is fucking dead. It's over. Yeah. I'm, I'm quitting. It's like, it, let's fucking go. This game's done. Here we are again. New expansion. Let's fucking go, boys. I mean, the request is still running, isn't it? <laughs> What? EverQuest? That's still running, isn't it? Probably, yep. yeah. I mean, I that's say, still running, I mean... It was the MMO cycle, dude. Uh, this game is fucking dead until the next expansion. So the recent... The, the, the most recent World of Warcraft expansion was Shadowlands, and it sold almost 4 million units in its first day of launch, which at the time, yep. Blizzard said, was the fastest-selling PC game. You know, fastest-selling is always, you know, you can, you, can modif- you can adjust that however you need to. 
to define fastest selling, but still selling almost 4 million units in one day. That's pretty darn good. And that was two years ago. So yeah, I will say that regardless of how people clearly feel about, wow. Now I do remember, like I had quite a few friends that played Shadowlands at launch and at least initially it seemed like people liked Shadowlands during the leveling and for like the first couple of weeks of launch. And then it was just like later the people are like, actually this expansion is really terrible. And I'm not sure if that's because of updates or lack thereof or like the, uh, I don't know, maybe just the, uh, Race period where they didn't really notice all the issues until they got to, to end game, which is obviously a very big concern when it comes to an MMO. Where it's like, I, I think it's the latter. It's usually they just don't know the issues initially. It's like me playing Genshin. I hate to compare this, but it's like you playing it when the first couple of weeks is the honeymoon phase where you see this game's like this god tier game. The next thing is like, maybe when you get to the end, it's like the end game sucks. Genshin <laughs> now, WoW is just like Genshin. <laughs> that that reminds me of uh, when Destiny Two first came out because, like everyone knows now, that like like when Destiny Two first came out, people didn't like it. But the thing is, is that for like the first like two weeks, people were really happy with it. It was only once they got to the end game where people were like, "There's nothing to do." So, kind of reminds me of that, which is interesting. Well, no one would make this mistake with WoW, but MMO players and in general, I'm like I'm not I'm painting with a broad brush here. Admittedly, it's like if I'm not if I'm if I don't hear about the game, uh, if it doesn't cross my field of view on online or whatever, then they, then it's probably dead, right? That game's dead. It's like no, it's it's not. <laughs> a couple other smaller bits of news here to kind of wrap out the uh pod, well more than a couple a handful of things here to wrap out the end of the podcast. Uh, some trailers, some new release dates. Uh, we got a new trailer for Soul Hackers Two for. It's Melody, My Lady. Uh, the, the the Japanese audio, it sounds like more like Melody, but it's spelled like My Lady. Uh, it's just a, a quick like minute-long trailer introducing one of the party members of the upcoming Soul Hackers 2. I don't think there's really a whole lot to pull from this. I watched it twice to say, like, all right, I'm going to say something enlightening. and like, you know, All right, yeah, give me your best enlightening comment about this trailer. Uh, the, the character seems a little bit impulsive and brash. That's kind of all I got. Like, it's, I'm enlightened. It's it's there wasn't a whole lot just to pull out of this. It's just kind of semi random scenes, kind of like the Xenoblade thing on, on a smaller scale, just kind of out of context and just kind of focusing on this one character. But it doesn't really just just describe her motivation that well or any. It's like it's fine. I guess it's an interesting. It's a once a one minute trailer. I don't want to like overemphasize. Like I needed more out of this. Like no, it, it was fine. But yeah, I'll, I'll play it and I'll you know I'll, we'll find out who this character is. It's okay. We'll live. Mm. Well, let's go straight on into a bunch of release dates. So Echoes of Mana, this is the new mobile mana game that was announced back at the 20, was it 25th series anniversary uh, a year, year or so back. Echoes of Mana will launch on April 27th, and we got a new animation trailer uh, alongside the, the date announcement. So that's, uh, you know, this week, basically, this upcoming week, we'll be able to play Echoes of Mana. I don't know if Josh or Chow are interested in this, but here we are. Are you going to download it, Chow? I download it, but I won't put like my put much effort to it. I don't know. I just don't seem to connect with any mobile games that Square Enix have made. Mm, I guess I'll try it then. If you're gonna try it, well, then I technically guess I'll try it. this is Right Flyer Studios because you know most Square Enix or, games. Or should I say it's more like anything that belongs to Square? I mean, it's like oh, I tried Final Fantasy Brave Exodus. I know it's not made by Square, but it's done by is it Gumi or is it Gummy? I don't know how you say it. 
Uh, I find that game was terrible. Right uh, Player Studios is okay. They've done another Eden. They've done a Danmachi game. They've done... Um, I, did they do Heaven Burns Red? I forgot if that they did that too. I think they did Heaven Burns Red. The one that they're doing with Key. Yeah, I just didn't have any good uh, experience of anything from Square Enix's properties. I think the only decent game that they made apparently from what i heard is the the city opera something oh well, did they make op- opera omnia or oh, i don't know yeah. some somebody made that but that's the only decent like mobile title that i heard from square enix oh you're talking about square enix themselves oh, yeah like, okay, okay. like from well, their properties yeah, yeah but, okay. uh, it's definitely not made by square enix i don't think but, no no but no i don't think right player studios made opera i forgot who but but that's the only decent one like. i heard like even like there was the War of the Lions, the Brave Exodus, Brave was it the War of the Vision? I don't know. I mean, like look, you say whatever is decent. Like it, the, obviously, it, there's a difference between being decent and making money. And making money is Brave Exodus, Record Keeper, War of the Visions. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, they may be making money, but I don't remember them being fun or decent games. Uh, War of the Visions could be good if it wasn't like fucking awful to build your character from scratch in it. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> I guess uh, six star oh, unit, dude. I, 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 you know, a game is like weird if like you draw a character, the first reaction you have is, "Oh fuck, I drew a new character. I want to build." <laughs> I think there's something fundamentally flawed if that's like your uh, response to it. But yeah, Echoes of Mana. Hopefully, it's uh, it, it's cool. I mean, I, there, there's been some glimpses of gameplay, but I won't really know how I feel about it until I guess I give it a shot, which is you know just in a few days. Just a I question, guess. Josh. Did you That's try it. the Octopath Traveler mobile? I didn't. Game I didn't do the. I didn't do closed beta for it. I didn't do that. I somewhat dabbled a little bit in the Japanese version when it first launched, but I was like, uh, I don't really want to go through this. I heard. I heard really good things about it. Oh yeah, Right Player Studios did make um, that game too. Um, I want to try it out when it comes out in English for for real, for real. Um, yeah. But I I heard really good things about it. But that's all I people say it's better than the uh, Switch Octopath game, which is really funny. That's crazy. Maybe it's not hard, right? Uh, I find it was a decent game. Besides, I mean, <laughs> yeah, besides you know, the a major component of it, it was all right. We got a release date for the Shadowrun trilogy. Now, Adam, you might need to remind me a little bit here. I know this got announced for Switch late last year as part of a Nintendo Direct. No no release date, just the announcement of the port. And then the developer, Harebrained... What is it? Harebrained Schemes? Uh, later confirmed that it was going to come to other consoles, and then this announcement is just for the release date for all consoles. I Actually, correct? I think when they announced it for Switch, they never confirmed otherwise that it was coming to anything else. Usually when there's like a Nintendo Direct, like for example, I think Chrono Cross was announced in a Nintendo Direct, and then um, they immediately get the press Square release Enix immediately say, puts yeah. out a press release saying it's coming out to everything. But I think in this case, the Paradox never did. And so we didn't know for sure that it was coming out to anything else other than Switch until just now, even though it would have been kind of weird if like a Paradox published game like this was Switch exclusive. So but we, I think this is actually our first confirmation that it was coming out to basically all platforms. It already, it already this trilogy already basically lead, exists on PC. To not bury the lead, it's Shadowrun Trilogy is arriving on June 21st for PlayStation 5, Xbox, well, basically basically all consoles. Xbox Series, Xbox uh, One, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, and Switch. And probably, yeah. I don't want to, like, I'll go back to the podcast when this was announced at the Nintendo Direct. It's like, this is the, this kind of was a CRPG 
uh, they, they they all released around the same time as like the CRPG, like Pillars of Eternity and Divinity Original Sin One and Two, in like the late mid to late twenty tens. And interested in playing them, never got around to them. Would like to at some point. Once I do play them, I'll almost certainly play them on PC. But a lot of these games have seen some success uh, with their um, console renditions and figuring out how to get them to work with you know that dual analog or controller layout. Uh, so we'll have that uh, available in June for whatever console you want. Uh, here's an interesting one uh, for a couple of reasons. So we have mentioned several times on this podcast and on our social channels about the ongoing development seemingly struggles for Digimon Survive. It was originally meant to launch a couple of years ago, and then we uh, kind of get periodic messages from the development team talking about how they just want to make sure it's in as good a place as they can be when it launches, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we finally have a date to attach to Digimon Survive. It will launch on July 29th, which is a day after when... Or no, is it the day? I thought it was the day after. The same day as Xenoblade Chronicles 3, which is kind yep. of fun. Good salute for Digimon Survive. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, it's, it's, it's really, really bad timing. You know, I... I, I... I want to say there won't be much crossover, but of course there's going to be crossover. It's for RPG fans, whether it's strategy RPG or like uh, kind of like an action turn-based-ish RPG type scenario. I mean, there's going to be some crossover between the audiences, and if they're forced to pick one, I, it depends on how much of a fan they are to Digimon, I guess. Um, that's... Uh, the, the, the name is apt now, right? Mm-hmm. Digimon Survive. Yeah, and the announcement for this was just a quick, uh, was just a quick update from the uh, was it the producer, Kazuma Habu, mm-hmm. basically saying like it's this is less than a minute, basically saying like thank you sir, for being patient. We know we've shared a lot of news over the years about how we have to keep pushing this back, but announcing the date of July 29th. I am kind of a very casual Digimon fan, like I am like the most basic bitch Digimon fan. Like I watched like the first two seasons, played a few games in the PS1 era, watched a little bit of Tamers. That's pretty much it. So I'm kind of like. Interested to see, like, would this scratch my my nostalgia? But if you can only if you can only buy and play one at the moment, like, well, which one would you play first? Xenoblade. There you go. Wow, I'm going with Live Alive, guys. I don't have a good experience with Xenoblade too. You can you can beat Live Alive before Xenoblade Three comes out. That's the thing. Live Alive is not a long game. I couldn't. It's really even then. Live Alive is not a long game. It's like. Each character story is like what, barely what, five hours? Maybe some are even shorter. I, I think yeah, some are even shorter than that. I mean, like, the five hours is like the long end. Yeah, but so. still, I mean, for not everyone can play through can blitz through RPGs like we can. Even if it's a shorter one, like let's say it's like thirty hours, something like that. That's still like for only like if you only have a week between that and Xenoblade, there's a lot of people that just might skip on live alive, even if they were interested in it because they didn't want to get like halfway through the game right when Xenoblade three comes out. And I feel like more people are going to prioritize Xenoblade three. If they're a JRPG fan on switch, than people that are going to prioritize live alive over Xenoblade. And there's some, there's some grim names around this. Then saw live alive. Digimon survive. They're both not going to have to like, somehow get through their release date, date periods against Xenoblade. So. And it, the same thing happened last July. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> what happened last July? I don't even remember what was last uh, July. Monster Hunter Stories 2, uh, Neo Twilly, and um, Great Ace Attorney Chronicles oh, came yeah. out the same day. And within <laughs> a week of those games, Fuga Melodies of Steel. 
Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just how the just how it goes sometimes, man. <laughs> the last kind of release window announcement that we have is for an indie game that we've covered on the podcast, I believe, before called Chained Echoes. This is a game that had a. It was. It's one of those we've mentioned this kind of this. Uh, paradigm and that's the right word a lot where it had originally had a kickstarter campaign in 2019 got picked up by a publisher in 2020 uh, deck 13 is who picked up chain decos uh it kind of got showed off in some indie spotlights in uh you know in 2020 and 2021 and it has been announced by deck 13 that chained echoes will release in q4 this year for playstation 4 xbox one switch and pc this is a uh, 16-bit inspired turn-based jrpg uh, largely developed by one person so very indie in that sense it looks really cool it has some neat art and, and a neat aesthetic uh it is a 16-bit fantasy style rpg with mechs and airships which is i don't know that's an easy sell but i know that yeah, josh I, was interested in talking about this one a little bit yeah this one is cool this one like caught my eye and i was like doing the news bit for it and i like, saw the release window stuff and it it kind of has it gives me like uh, warm fuzzy Xenoblade X uh, feelings as I uh, when I went through the trailer because had, like it has the like your party members like uh, get up and like harbored mech knight suits in the middle of the field and like they fly around it and you can like customize them I, like in the trailer it showed like the, you being able to customize their color and then you can all like join in battle in your mech suits but obviously you can like do normal encounters just like with the people alone as well. And they have like some sort of like achieve like a bounty board system where like you like uh, do certain like achievements like uh, like kill X enemies with this party member to like get get like a bounty reward. Uh, it, lo- it looked like a license board from FF12 at first glance, but it isn't. But um, it's a it, it's one of those games that's like oh I'm gonna keep my eye on this game because it 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 looks really really cool. <laughs> that's just one of those like uh, things like you just kind of it was a nice surprise for me. Let's see. We have a sales update for the year, and that is that this is maybe not surprising, but Shimagami Tensei Five has now officially surpassed the one million units sold mark. So late last year, or sorry, in January of this year, it had surpassed eight hundred thousand units, and that noted that that was the best-selling game in the series now, and now is back to up to the million mark for Shimagami Tensei Five. So call it the switch effect, call it Atlas, just kind of gaining more. I don't know if notoriety is the right word as a publisher, but Shin Megami Tensei Five is the new high watermark for the series. Million, I think, well deserved. Not a perfect game, but I think a really, really good one. Well deserved for Shin Megami Tensei. Yeah, I mean that's uh, crazy. I mean, like the last time was like what 600k for SMT4 back in July 2015. Then like our it, the last time you heard about SMT5 sales was like back in January with 800k. So it was all it, like back in January. Like it's only a matter of time till it reaches a million. And sure enough, you know, that's that's good, you know. Uh like growth in the series is always nice to see. Obviously, like you said, not the perfect game, but uh at least it like it solidifies that hey, they're gonna make more SMT games probably, now that mm-hmm. it's like uh just growing and growing more. And yeah, th- there's always time to uh improve on the formula. How well do you I, think I, I, I understand why so. people do this, but people like compare some people compare like but like Persona 5 sold like four million or something like uh. that, right? And it's just like mm. SMT clearly doesn't have like as broad of an appeal. Uh, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's, you know, a more targeted game for a more targeted audience. Yeah. And being 1 million compared to what it used to be, like 600,000 on the on the 3DS, like, hey, that's a pretty good jump. And Switch exclusive too. Like, 
on I know Persona is also an exclusive, but you know, we'll see uh if that NVIDIA leak comes true and it ends up on other platforms like PC. Who knows? I almost forgot about that. I was gonna say, remember those days when Atlas had that Shin Megami Tensei title in the persona so that people could recognize the branding more Yeah, easier. that was in the West. It's kinda of funny now. Um well also I wonder like I wonder how well Soul Hackers is gonna do. Like, is it gonna capture I know obviously the big Atlas fans are gonna get it no matter what, but we'll see if it ha- if it can like break through like Persona does, or if it's more like on the SMT level. I don't know. It's obviously on more platforms, so that'll help. I take it it's gonna be more popular than SMT. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think I, so. I put I put that bet. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I would be shocked if it sells more than a thousand copies on Xbox. Damn. <laughs> I mean he's not wrong. But, but I'm putting that bet that Soy is gonna be more popular than SMT. I'm not. I don't. I don't know. I have no idea because Soul Hackers is even like somewhat more niche than SMT. I know it is more niche at this point, but I feel like this new modern vibe to it seems to catch more of the current audience over. Like the idea, I think the persona is like this is our next persona, guys. Yes, they should have. They should have. They should have done what they did in the early 2000s. They called it Persona Soul Hackers. Oh God! Oh no! That would have destroyed me, but I'm not sure. It's it's hard to say. I cannot I cannot predict how a, tw- a sequel to a 25 year old game how it will do. <laughs> I'm guessing the first sales milestone for Slackers Two will be the 500,000 mark in early 2023. Uh, okay, all right. Um, I can't predict the future that well. Fuck, I don't even know. I have no idea. The only, thing I, the only thing I care about is like, oh, cool, my old game is getting a sequel. That's all my lizard brain can take. So back in February on the podcast, we talked about how the first Front Mission was getting a remake on Nintendo Switch to release sometime this summer. Well, now we've got the announcement of a new Front Mission game called Front Mission Borderscape for mobile devices. So I didn't hear about this until Josh brought it up right before the podcast. Josh, what do you, what, what do we have about front mission borderscape? Uh, I think well, it was you that brought it up or was it Adam? I, I, I did, but like, I don't know much aside from like what Adam reported. So, okay. So here, here I don't know go. a whole lot about the front mission games, but there was apparently a feature phone game for Japan, like before smartphones called front mission 2089. Um, we never got it. I don't know anything about it except that it's set in 2089 and it's like called it's around like the second Huffman War, which is some event in this. Is, it, is that like a, a, a DS game as well? Yeah, it got remade to be a DS game okay. later, but that's also only Japan. So like this Front Mission 2089 like sub series has never been in English. And then now this game is called, from what I can tell, just Front Mission Borderscape. Like if you go to the official YouTube and everything, it's just called Front Mission Borderscape. But it has like in the logo, the 2089, and then it mentions it in like the YouTube description. So it seems to be like not necessarily a remake of those games, but like it's set in this sub-series Front Mission 2089 timeline. And we know it has to do with this war, but otherwise we don't know much about it. We have like this concept trailer that shows like this girl, this woman, like in some sort of conflict zone and she enters a mech obviously it's front mission like this game is coming to mobile devices and 
like multiple platforms. So whether that's just a PC client, like Genshin, you know, has Genshin, but I don't know if it'll like a PlayStation version or anything. We don't know. It's just mobile devices and multiple platforms. It has a pre-registration page. So it looks like it's going to be a free-to-play game. There's probably going to be gotcha elements, but otherwise, yeah. The interesting, the interesting thing is, know. like, this is this is made from the developers of Legris or Mobile as well. It's like, wow, that's that's interesting to think about. I mean, yeah, I it's also kind of interesting that like Front Mission is a Square Enix property, but they are not publishing this, and they're not publishing the remake either because that's a uh, who is that? I forget what? the name. Oh, I forgot. It was like the ones who did like the Panzer Dragoon remake. Right. Um, it's like Square Enix basically just almost licensed out the IP name IP. to another publisher. And then that publisher picks up a developer to develop this mobile the, game as well as that remake. According to this, it's Forever Entertainment. Yeah, that's it. Yes. So it's, it's just kind of interesting how like Square Enix is more like they call themselves. They actually put out a tweet like they're supervising. So kind of interesting. Yeah. And it's also interesting, like during this concept trailer, they have like uh, several staff members, like Tsuchida, like like kind of like veterans of, of like front mi- developing front mission, like talking about the game and like, oh yeah, we want to stick to the spirit of front mission, and like we know what front mission's all about. It's like it's kind of a weird, it's that sort of a weird trailer where like it, it, it you don't see any gameplay, you only see CGI, and then you have like some of the staff, like two staff members talking about like, kind of the reasoning of why this thing exists. A little bit, <laughs> like oh, all right, I guess. Um, I don't know. I guess I want to. I want to see what the game looks like at this point. I mean, I'm I'm interested. I don't know. I I it, I don't know what to expect. I I guess, which is a good and bad thing. This next announcement I had to read a couple times for a couple reasons. So last year I had forgotten about this. But Mihoyo, the developers behind Genshin Impact, announced Honkai Star Rail, which is a turn-based RPG uh, for PC and mobile devices that will be in English, Japanese, Korean, and Chinese. And today they announced a character trailer for the upcoming Honkai Star Rail. And this character trailer is called March 7th Trailer. Adam, explain to me what I'm reading. Like... That so is the character's name, it, or is it yeah, a title? It, it, it's a character trailer. So, like, let's just say the character's name was Amber. It's like, but and you just say it's the Amber trailer. Um, but instead, the character's name is March seventh. That's the character's name. So it's just the March seventh trailer. So it's just a character trailer. That's just what it is. It just is there, it's confusing like, at a glance because when you see it, it's called the March seventh trailer, but it came out on like April twentieth. Like, nope, it's March seventh. That's the character's name. They were definitely 420 when they uh, released the trailer. But, uh, okay, well, are there any like significant holidays on March 7th? Um, we, 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 need, we need to get to the bottom. Why is this character named March 7th? Yeah, like, uh, that's, that's kind of my, like, okay, if you tell me the character's uh, name is March 7th, I'm like, all right, I can live with that, but why? Like, Well, they probably found her on March 7th. I mean, oh, no, here, we, have, here we go. Uh, uh, March 7th, we have uh, Alexander Graham Bell Day. I don't. I don't think that that uh tracks National Cereal Day, which if she's into cereal, then maybe Plant Power Day, or or World Math Day, also March seventh. What do you think? Uh, I believe in neither of those. <laughs> but I'm like, is it is it because these characters are like identified by the day they were 
found, created. Like now, now I'm like curious, like the premise of this game, because I've I've seen uh, a little we, bit of okay, the gameplay. Do, do we know any other character names in this game besides March Seventh? We the, do. The, we the website has Ronya. some, but they're not. The, she's the only one that has a date as a name. But what what are the other names in this game? Give me a sec. Let me pull it up. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I need to. I need to know now. I'm I'm so curious. Do you do this? Oh, here. I I so I've gone to the Honkai Star Rail Facebook page. Okay. On April twenty on April twenty first, it's like character March seventh. Why is my name March seventh? You ask. Well, it's to commem- commemorate the day I woke up on the express. Who I am, oh. where I'm from, my name, everything else was erased from my memory. So well, okay, so this is she so was... this isn't something that isn't this isn't something that's like permeating through the whole game. It's something specific to this character. I guess she has that's... no memory, and therefore she can only know the day that her memory started, which was March seventh. So there you go. That's deep. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank the other you. the other characters on the website are named Himeko, Welt, and Dan Heng. Uh, I did say that it's probably the day that she was found. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Well, it's, it's the, you were wrong too, because that's not the day she was found. That's the day she like woke up and like just remember nothing. So you were wrong, child. Yeah, mm, I get I get a name you fe- February 29th now. That's your new name. Oh my god. Uh, there's a Facebook comment like, you fooled me, Mihoyo. I thought she was already released since her name is March 7th, and it wasn't. It's just a name. You're struggling with naming characters right now? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. People are very uh, passionate I, I, about it. I also when like when you don't know what to call your character, so you just put up a calendar and throw a dart, and it's like, okay, ah, March 7th. Here we go. <laughs> I mean, that'd be sick, actually. I'd play an RPG. I do have a friend that's... I do have a best friend that's born on March seventh. So, dang, do they feel like the luckiest person ever now? Maybe I should talk to them. Yeah, it's like, they're <laughs> like, yeah, I've already, March seventh. Yeah, they're like, I'm already uh, saving thousands to pull March seventh from this gotcha game. And then the last bit of news here is following up on the mysterious and interesting announcement from a bit back about Sega's Super Game Project. And we kind of had some cheeky discussion about what we think the Super Game is. Well, we kind of can glean some details of what what the Super Game might be, and it might not be a single game at all. So a report originally coming out of Bloomberg is that apparently Sega is developing some big-budget remasters, remakes, re-envisionings of the Crazy Taxi and Jet Set Radio in a form of a reboot. And this is part of their Super Game initiative. So Super Game might actually refer to several games and they might refer to remakes of existing Sega IPs, which to me is not that interesting. People kind of already inferred that uh, Super Game might mean more than one game, but we still didn't know like what it was exactly. I think the uh, there's a Sega company. Oh shoot, I'm gonna get their name wrong. Um, based in England, that's doing like a like a shooter game, and people are like wondering, does that fall under the super game category? Like, what actually falls into this like? Category? Oh, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember the name now. I, I do reckon I do remember what you're talking about, but it's like I'm trying to remember what were like the, the core tenets of like what they consider a super game. Like it was all very basic. Like it was very basically like like a triple A IP. That can like basically like produce profit under its own like like in its own product essentially. I'm trying to remember what that what the how they classified a super game and not, and not the like, studio I was thinking of the studio I was thinking of was Creative Assembly. They're like making some 
triple a shooter type game that like we think kind of falls into this category but we're not it's now now we know that it seems like these sort of remake initiatives also fall into this category with just set radio and whatnot so so we like a lot of people inferred and maybe sega said this directly that they're looking to compete with Fortnite. They want to kind of create this like this IP that is like almost self-sustaining, can be uh, uh, enjoyed in multiple different like you know consoles or forms formats or whatever. To me, it's like all right, that's kind of interesting. We'll see what they do. What's you know what, what sort of creative ideas will come out of this? And then you're telling me we're rebooting Jet Set Radio. I'm like okay, like what about that makes it a super game? I don't know. That just seems like par for the course to me. Like that's what everyone, all all these IP holders, just reboot their stuff. I don't know. To me, I, I read this headline about this most new detail about this initiative, and it makes it seem far less interesting to me that it's just reboots of existing IPs. I don't know. Yeah, maybe no, I, like maybe a, it's because I've never played Jet Set Radio, and I don't have like like one of the old uh, slides that I pulled off of like a Sega Sammy strategic portfolio is like when they when they describe the creation of Super Game, it's like uh, that like these are like titles which could be expanded globally, so they have high growth potential. Um, I don't then, see Crazy Taxi. Uh, I guess they, they do they do say utilization of past IPs, but I guess I thought this meant more like wh- whatever they form, you'd have like crossovers or gear, or like you know how Fortnite incorporates every media IP under the sun, something like that, only for Sega IPs. I guess I don't know, but now, now it's just yeah, like this. Inclu- this includes reboots, and then like I guess one of these, like I don't know if this actually necessarily falls under the Super Game Initiative or not, but support subscriptions or like are these like. Crazy Taxi and Jet Set Radio reboots are they going to be like? Are, are they basically going to be like a, like a de- they're aiming like for a Destiny experience where like these are now live service games with triple A budgets behind them? I say it's probably that because they're just that trying might. to find their. They've been chasing gimmicks and fads right now, so you know. I I don't think I don't think it was going to be successful though. Yeah, I I I think this whole super game thing—if that this is what they're gonna try to like—this is like a glimpse behind like what they think as the the super game should be. I don't know. I don't know if Crazy Taxi and Jet Set Radio have like the global appeal to like get reach that level. They they're certainly fun back in the day. I, Not I don't to know mention, but I don't know if they're like live service like <laughs> you know appeal of it though. No. Yeah, not to mention, like, looking at that graph you posted, it's like, they were expecting PSO2 to grow. Instead, it's absolutely cratered, so. Yeah, uh, I, I, heard, I heard New Genesis is just not working out for them, like, at the moment. Well, it has no content. If they had content or... Well, I mean, it's still year. getting content. Like, uh, Brian uh, has been a soldier and and uh, going through the content. All well, it is release right launch state. It needed more content for it. Release. So here, it's here, here is here's the 60 second new Genesis update. Okay, okay. they introduced right. a new dungeon that actually has an interesting idea called the Geometric Pyramid. It's kind of like mm. this dungeon that changes. It has like sort of like random uh, objectives and like bonuses, and you can like challenge it by making it so that like enemies do more damage or have more HP, or you can use less healing items. The concept itself is fine, but they kind of hamstrung it because it doesn't have matchmaking of any sort. So you have to have oh. like a preformed party before you go in. And which to me just completely hinders its, you know, if you if you if you haven't been playing the game, you're interested in this and you don't have like a guild or an alliance or whatever it's called, you're, you're probably not going to experience this because it has no matchmaking. So there, my 60 second update. Interesting idea that they had that they just kind of hamstrung because they didn't incorporate it in a smart way, in my opinion. There this, you is go. Why, this is why New Genesis is not a super game. Yep. 
Are you gonna play the Jet Set Radio reboot? These things need to like exist first, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Like, Based on nothing <laughs> but an idea. Those are absolutely nothing. Are you gonna play like uh yeah, maybe but, sure. If they if they if they exist, maybe I'll give them a try, depending on if like they don't look like dog shit. That's pretty good. Are you gonna play them like uh but let's be serious here. Would anybody care about Crazy Taxi reboot? I mean, the original game was just kind of like a, a two minute fad. You just pay. What does a big budget Crazy Taxi look like? How do you make triple A Crazy Taxi? It'll have a story. It'll be like Kyu's uh, Taxi Days. Okay, that'd be sick. Actually, all right, I'm in. Let's go. I, I, I am now in favor of Super Game, and this Crazy Taxi is just uh, Yakuza the Yakuza Five Kiryu uh, Taxi. Pre-order Crazy Taxi reboot to get the. Uh, <laughs> You're gonna do Kiryu that. Skin. You're definitely gonna fucking have a fucking driver skin thing. Oh my god, what this gonna be Kiryu? Like how they did in Super Monkey Ball? Oh fuck, you're right. If that was legit. <laughs> I'm all awesome. Oh, damn it, damn it, child. Don't give it more. Don't give it any more. Uh, all jokes ideas. aside. All Holy jokes shit. aside. I think. Crazy Taxi could work as a battle royale where you just all get dropped into an open world and you have to like keep going with your uh, affairs as quickly as much as you can and you can ram into other players to try and like get them off course. Ooh, that'd be sick. that'd be interesting. Yeah, and then and then like the upgrade to get along the way is like like parts for your taxi to like get like better like ramming or whatever. Oh, <laughs> if you're a Sega rep, you didn't hear anything. All right, don't steal our ideas. We're gonna copyright uh, patent them right now. <laughs> And that's the last headline that we had for this week. So kind of a fun, interesting week, a variety of different news topics. Uh, I'm glad we were able to uh, spend a decent amount of time talking about James's write-up for the Final Fantasy XIV remake. Also, do go ahead and give a look at the Fire Emblem Awakening retrospective, almost, of sorts that Nathan put up, as well as all the other uh, announcements and news posts and release dates that are up on the site. As always, whenever we have a podcast that has a handful of release dates, do know that Adam always does a stupendous job keeping a RPG yearly calendar of release dates up to date and i'm always so surprised when i say like nothing's changed right and it'll always say like last updated literally within like two days adam is on top of that so just google rpgs of 2022 and you'll probably find it as well as all the other news that's up on the site you can also find rpg site on all the social media platforms we are on facebook twitter youtube and instagram and you can join our discord by uh, typing in discord.gg slash rpg site or selecting the Discord icon link at the top of our homepage at rpgsite.net. As always, thanks for listening, and you'll hear from us next week. Until then, stay safe, take care, and we'll talk to you later.